All right, one more time, Matt. Are you kidding me? It has to be perfect. One more time. This is hour two into testing the fucking mics. And when it's perfect, we can start recording. Oh, fuck, man. I'm never going to go home. Test one. Test one. Test two. Test, 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 test. Okay, I think that's okay. Uh, I'm sounding okay. Let's try it one more time. What the fuck? No, no, hang on. Same time, both of us. Ready? All right. Test, 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 test. See, you were a little louder than me. Let's start over again. Wait, no. Oh, wait, no, 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 no. Dude, this is my favorite movie. I'm going to send you to that castle if you have us do this fucking again, you crazed asshole. Look, it's got to be perfect. If I didn't get drunk for Animal House, which is my favorite movie, you can let go of this shit for yours. All right, fine. Look, folks, I'm really sorry if this episode turns out to be absolute shit. It's all Matt's fucking fault, so what? I guess we'll just fucking start it now. Hey! This show will pollute listeners' ears with foul language, occasional sexually explicit content, and more irony than is allowed for single episodes. In the last several years, distributors of obscenity have expanded into new areas, employing new technologies and reaching new audiences. Neither our constitution, our courts, our people, nor our respect for common decency and human suffering will allow this trafficking in obscene material. Cinema PsyOps. Which exploits women and men alike to continue. Sharing filth-laden desires on mic to warp the brains of listeners until they are all demented deviants. Federal laws are being violated, and thus I am committed to redoubling the federal effort to ensure that those criminal elements who are trafficking in obscenity are pursued with a vengeance and prosecuted to the hill. The fact that society is becoming much more open now, less repressed, and I think there's less need for... Cinema PsyOps. Without dignity, they shout into the void in a vain attempt to be loved living in this culture now where there's just icebergs of filth floating through every house on Wi-Fi. It's inconceivable what it must be like to be a young adolescent now with this kind of access to cinema psyops. It must be dizzying and exciting but corrupting in a way that we can't even think about. A pirate ship with a tattered flag sailing across seas of questionable movies while firing cannons of disdain. Cinema psyops. Long may she sail. Hello and welcome to Cinema PsyOps. I am your currently obsessive compulsive host, Court, trying to make this absolutely perfect and constantly fucking up everything about my life, including the show that will cover my favorite movie is Matt. But Jesus fucking Christ, you're the fucking worst. <laughs> All I want to do is yeah. do a couple of checks that took a little bit of time. Four fucking hours. But we got it right, finally. Four fucking hours. Yes, but we got it right. No, that's not right. I mean, dude, it was right three hours ago. No, it yeah, really yeah, wasn't. It was. You were slightly louder than me when you said test louder than me. 
Uh, well, yeah, because I spoke louder than you. I know, and I had to fix it. No, God damn it! See, you're like the eye doctor, man. It's like, do you ever get out of the eye doctor with any kind of anything happening? It's like, which one's better, A or B? Oh, A. No wait, B. Uh, no wait, A. No, no wait, B. I forgot to ask your opinion about if it was better one or better two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I don't give a fuck. It's you, for my ears only. You flying fuck. All right. This week we are talking about what has been widely released as the ninth configuration which is my favorite movie of all time. Anyone who's known me for any extended period of time knows this and anyone yes. who's been to my 30th birthday knows this because yes. I screened the then DVD version of the film. Listen, if anybody just comes to your house, you have one poster up on the wall and then another picture down here someplace. I know I always see it. No, it's no, the no. same thing. Yeah, no, it's the poster, I'm sorry, room. I'm yeah. thinking of a screensaver that shows up on your computer yeah. of a scene yeah. from the ninth configuration. Which is one of my favorite scenes in the film. Yeah. Which is all of them. Which is all of them. <laughs> let me, can I ask you something? Do you yeah. have any review of this movie or did you just have clips and we're going to sit here and listen to the movie? Uh, it's a heavy mixture of both. Yeah. I have 11 clips and some of them oh, are a... like 10 to 12 minutes oh, of screen time. Okay, okay I got you. I, I got cut you. down I got a you. little bit. Yeah, yeah so yeah. it's it's going to be a very clip-heavy show, but this is like 96% dialogue this film has played out in. Well, and I can't blame you for that. I had 16 freaking clips last week. So. Yeah, and some of them were like 20 seconds just because you wanted to have the joke. You got to have the joke, yeah. man. Come on. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I just want to kind of go through a little bit of the history of how this got started, and I have all my stuff that has to do with the ninth configuration here. Okay. The only thing I don't have right in front of me is the VHS tape, because that is somewhere locked in one of my storage bins. Uh, okay, I got gotcha. And I didn't dig that out. I thought you were going to say locked in a, you know, a, a bank vault. <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing like that, but um, I, if I, I should actually take it out and put it on display with, when I get the room set up to be able to display my VHS tapes that I do still want to keep, that'll be one of the things. Now, the Ninth Configuration film actually started out as a novel that William Peter Blatty wrote in the 60s, like in the late 60s, because he was missing a deadline and he needed to just hammer something out. Okay. And that's the original Twinkle Twinkle Killer Kane, which is the original title for the original book. Okay. And the movie was almost released as that, but it was changed because, you know, studios tamper with everything at all times. I, I would say, though, the ninth configuration is a is a better title. Yeah, either way, it sounds like it's a fucking horror movie when it really yeah, isn't. Yeah, this is not every, a horror movie. Yeah, but everybody thinks it's going to be just from the title alone, especially when it's Twinkle Twinkle Killer Kane. People think it's going to be a slasher. Well, and it, you know, and also, if you at all look at, like, you could say even if you looked at a VHS tape, you know, they have the pictures in the movie in the back, you'd still think it might look like a horror movie because it's in an old castle. Everything is, you know, grimy and dark. In the VHS tape version, some of the guys are wearing the Gestapo uniforms that show up later on when they play Great Escape. Yeah. So, like, the VHS tape I have has Stacy Keish in his Gestapo uniform when they're playing Great Escape to indulge the men. Yes. So that totally makes it seem like it could even be a, like a Nazi exploitation yeah, flick. Yeah, something, man. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting flick. Yeah, it's definitely it's, it's all a over good the place. One. Now, it starts from this place of the novel, which I have an author's note. Now, after Blatty adapted the screenplay from the original Twinkle Twinkle Killer Kane and kind of reworked it. He also reworked it into a novella at the same time, which is kind of like a novelization of the film, but it's more like the complete version of the story that he wanted to tell written in novel form that he then kind of turned into a script, as far as I understand. It doesn't look like a super long book. No, it's a novella. That's what yeah, it's called. Yeah. And I'm just reading the author's note from that book, which is the ninth configuration, which is on the cover. It says, now a movie shocker from the man who brought you the exorcist. 
Blatty notes, when I was young and worked very hastily and from need, I wrote a novel called Twinkle Twinkle Killer Kane. Its basic concept was surely the best I have ever created, but what was published was just as surely no more than the notes for a novel, some sketches, unformed, unfinished, lacking even a plot. But the idea mattered to me, so once again, I have written a novel based on it. This time, I know it is the best that I can do. Now, Twinkle Twinkle Killer Kane, the the actual novel is a much different version of the story. It's a lot more comedy oriented and it feels a lot more like sort of a scathing take on military handling of mental illness that can come about, whether it's PTSD or other types of mental disturbances that can result from wartime for soldiers or even just serving in general, what that can do to you, that type of routine and what may happen and how the military handles it. Mm -hmm. It's a lot closer to, are you familiar with the Catch-22 Film and novel. Did you ever see the film? Or I don't think I've seen it, but I've heard about it. Oh my God. You would love the Alan Arkin Catch 22 film. Yeah. You would, yes. Yeah. It's also a series on Prime right now that I guess George Clooney had a lot to do with where they adapted the novel like super close to what the novel is on that. And mm. my wife and I just watched that and we loved it. But Twinkle Twinkle Killer Kane, the original novel, reminds me mostly of what's in Catch 22. Okay. It's that kind of scathing take on military indulgences and military failing on dealing with the mental health issues of some of its soldiers that it causes and that kind of thing. A lot of the story is more wacky and zany and basically the cane in this isn't necessarily mentally disturbed himself. He just is Whoa. being... Spoiler alert. Way to go. <laughs> well, wow. Ruin the film for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> but the cane in this isn't actually mentally disturbed or anything. He's more or less being blackmailed by the inmates to do the things that they want. Uh, so he has to sell the indulgences thing. And basically while he's being blackmailed and they basically drive him crazy and make him insane. All of the cosmic existential dread that has to do with the fear of your place in the universe, what happens with your existence, how you've come to be, what happens when you're gone, how everyone is terrified to die alone, all those kind of concepts didn't come along until he reworked it into the ninth configuration novel. I got you. And then also the script. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the same ideas are there, and I highly recommend reading the two books back to back at some point if you're interested and you absolutely love the film and you can find them. They're a lot easier to find now than when I first went on this quest. Oh, okay. And I'll kind of go into the actual quest as sort of like the final thoughts segment a little uh -huh. bit more, but I just kind of wanted to start with where the story starts from. Yeah. Was these two novels, and we can go from there and I'll even have recommendations for those that are looking to get their own copy of it. There you go. Which is the best to get your hands on. If you just want to see the film, apparently you can watch it on Tubby for free. Oh. Huh. I can't verify what version of it is because I didn't go and check. Yeah. But it's also, I guess you can rent it on Amazon Prime for about three ninety nine. apparently. That's not bad. Yeah. Now those are the two ways that you can see it that way if you want to see it in advance. And I don't think it's a huge spoiler alert because every description I've ever read on the back of the most of the DVDs and stuff. Yeah. They give it away, too. Yeah, see, that's just dumb, man. That's supposed to be one of your bigger reveals. I know. I know. And it's really sad. And I actually had it spoiled for me basically before I watched it, too, because the original VHS tape that I saw of it had that written on the back, too, that says what's going on. Man. <laughs> but they also, I mean, it's not its not hidden very long. They it's come a, right out and call it out with a quick conversation right after Kane arrives. Yeah. They do. So That's true. Yeah. But, yeah. but I just wanted to kind of like lay the groundwork for everything that we're talking about. 
And also, if you here. see how Kane acts throughout this whole thing, it's, you know, right. you, you know something's up with him. <laughs> right. Well, and that's the other thing that, I, and we'll, we'll get into it when we get into the movie, but that's the thing that really drew me to this film, is that you never know right off the bat who is quote-unquote sane and who is yeah. quote-unquote insane, because all of the people that are supposed to be the guards taking care of the, they call them inmates in this, but I'm going to refer to them as patients in my notes well, yeah. and, and here, because they are. They're, they're patients in an asylum. Um, all of the folks that are supposed to be guarding them in this asylum are actually some of them have behaviors that are not too far off than the actual men who are suffering from various combat fatigues and issues from I mean they're test pilots and all of that yeah so I mean when you first watch the film when you don't know what's going on you absolutely 100% are just kind of worried like are they just being dumped here and left to fend for themselves like all of them are they all somewhat lost or touched in the head or like insane (laughs) or what's going on so that's the thing that really appealed to me about this film and I know that when we get to the final message I'm sure a lot of listeners will be like what the fuck how is this your favorite film yeah you staunch militant atheist bastard exactly and everyone I've ever shown this to they're like wait what how is this your favorite film (laughs) I I just stop asking those questions Well, I'm going to tell you folks the how, but the way that I'm going to have to do that is to first take a break here, play the podcast promo for the Legion Patreon ad. Yeah. I don't know why I announce it, because you're just going to hear it in a you're couple seconds. Yeah, I don't know. There is no trailer for this film, and we'll get into why, but we'll have a little music directly out of the film, and then we will get right to it. This will keep you quiet. Oh, hi there. I didn't see you. You caught me cutting a new show. I'm Bo Ransdell, and I'm one of the many creators you can find on Legion Podcasts. I said quiet! My fellow podcasters and I work hard to bring you the best in horror podcasting, but that comes at a cost. What's that like to live deliciously? Not that, but also, yes. No, what I'm getting at is that there are server costs, costs for good microphones and software for editing, all the things that make our shows, you know, fun to listen to. And you can help. If you're enjoying the shows on legionpodcasts.com or in the Legion Network available on iTunes and Stitcher, just about anywhere you can download a podcast, really, you can help us out and get a little something for your trouble at patreon.com forward slash legionpodcasts. For just two bucks a month, you get a pair of movie commentaries exclusive to Patreon. And for five dollars, you can also join us for a monthly screening of a movie. All of that available on patreon.com forward slash legion podcasts. We appreciate it and thank you for listening. Now, back to the cutting room. San Antonio, it's really good to see you. It's been a while, but you've been on my mind. I've seen your rolling hills and winding. So clear that I could almost make them mine I can almost see the old Bandera Highway Stretching out toward old Mexico And the times we used to walk down by the river Seems like such a long, long time ago. San Antonio, it's really good to see you. It's been a while, but you've been on my mind. I've been a lot of places, 
right, so astute listeners that are also fans of the film Rolling Thunder will recognize that song. That I think it's Denny Brooke is the guy who sings it, but it was apparently written by Brian Dvorzen, who also did the music for this movie, and that's why it was used. And also, it's set up to be a sort of vignette type thing to open up the film. Yeah. It's almost like an overture to bring you into this world, because I think you need a minute to adjust to where you're going to be before you even come in. That just sounds like a mellow song. Something you can kick back, spend a lazy Sunday afternoon listening to. For the longest time, I thought that was John Denver. (laughs) Until I looked it up and like started actually learning more about the film. I just assumed it was a John Denver song, because it sure sounds like him, doesn't it? Yeah. All right. Now, I kind of discussed this. The reason that there's not really a trailer is this was basically a very tumultuous production. They had a lot of issues. They went over to Bulgaria to shoot the film. William Peter Blatty was a first-time director, and you will probably recognize that name, everybody out there, because he's the guy who wrote the original novel for The Exorcist, and he was heavily involved in the production of The Exorcist as well. And there's a lot of folks that were on The Exorcist that worked on this picture, too. Yeah, one of the main actors. Yes. Yes. Also, the production designer and a couple of other crew members that were on The Exorcist, Blatty poached for this. Because I guess he had a say in a lot of the stuff that went on with The Exorcist, thanks to William Freakin being quite uh, open to his collaboration. Yeah. Or less interested in dealing with that kind of shit than what Blatty was. Yeah. Now, we kind of went over that whole thing, and as things are kind of different, because there's multiple versions of this film, depending upon what you see, so we'll have to go through those cuts and talk about it. Probably do that in the final thoughts, too. (laughs) Uh, But let's just kind of dig into the actual movie itself here. Uh, The film opens with an establishing vignette, as we were talking about, set to that song, San Antone. And what it shows is the world in which Cutshaw has been living since whatever incident it is that sent him to this particular castle. It is a very moving sequence in that it helps to establish how escapist a song can actually be. As we see Cutshaw sitting by a window, staring out into the distance and kind of sighing, having moments of the song lift him away from where he is. And then he just kind of quietly lets the song fade out. And it's almost like this transcending moment from his dire circumstances. Yeah, he's, uh, it seems like he's just trying to get into a mindset there. And his world is definitely very bizarre. He yes. is in an old style, very gothic-y castle. Yes. That is apparently somewhere in the Pacific Northwest, according to the film, uh-huh. that has been used on the cheap by the military to house himself and other patients. They they don't have to pay anything for it, is what are, they said. Who are suffering a mental breakdown yeah. or have suffered a mental breakdown during times of war. Yeah. The reason they say they got it is because the, the the town or wherever owns it told them they could use it for free. Now, at the end of the song, Cutshell stops the tape and we cut from this to the actual film opening, which for the longest time, every version I've ever had of it was just the film opening without this little vignette. Mm-hmm. Not sure how much it needs to be there, but once you fall in love with the film, you tell yourself it needs to be there. <laughs> You're like, no, it's important. It's, and I've it's, tried it's, it to justify it in my own head with the whole thing that I just wrote there. So to me, it needs to be there. All right. But then we actually start with the actual opening credits type sequence of the film after he stops the tape and we actually see a rocket launch and we actually watch the moon rise up over the silhouette of a rocket which is absolutely beautiful and featured in a lot of the presentations of the posters and that type of lobby cards and that artwork you will see that now we actually see this from a very large distance where you can make out the outside of the rocket and then the moon becomes this big ominous thing that rises up past it and we see the names of the actors being listed as the credits displayed over all of this as it starts to roll up the name of the film the ninth configuration displays as the music crescendos and we see this is written by and directed by william peter blatty 
of Exorcist fame, as I've already mentioned. The moon rises at the height of this crescendo right after the title pops up and the director and written credits pop up, and an alarm sound is being raised during this launch, and we see this is a nightmare of Captain Cutshaw losing himself as he is dragged away from the capsule, screaming, there is nothing up there, nothing, nothing, over and over again, and he is completely mad at this point. He yeah. has lost it. He, uh, he's gone bye-bye. <laughs> this awakens Cutshaw in fear. As we mentioned, this is very clearly his nightmare. As he hears barking in the distance, he sits up in bed. He walks to the window in the castle and stares out at the rising sun. He says very briefly to himself, someone is coming. The introduction of all of the patients and some of the crew of this particular castle asylum is introduced in our very first clip. And you made your name and get a move on! Move on! Move on, you weirdo! You know, I'd wish you'd douche sincerely. Watch your elbow. Hey, Ma, throw out a quarter for the movies, please. Damn, son. There's no color in the air. What country is this? The Bronx. Rudolph Valentino hated cabbage. Toward the end of the war in Vietnam, an unusually high percentage of American servicemen suddenly manifested symptoms of psychosis. Most of them were in combat or slated for combat and had no prior history of mental disturbance. These facts, plus the epidemic scope of the problem and the controversial nature of the Vietnam War, led American authorities to wonder whether many, if not most, of the men were faking. To probe the mystery, the government established a network of secret study centers and clinics. The last of these, number 18, was highly experimental in nature and was set up in an old abandoned castle in the Pacific northwestern United States. Among its inmates was an astronaut who, during final countdown, had aborted a mission into outer space. Robert Browning had the clap, and he caught it from Charlotte and Emily Bronte. Shut your mouth, you crazy bastard. You don't want to hear the truth. He caught it from both of them. Shut up! Fucking weirdo. Yellow smartass college pricks. That says it. Who do you think you're kidding, huh? Well, bad news, boys. Tough shit. But guess who's coming to take command next week? Can you guess, boys, huh? A psychiatrist! The best, the best in uniform! The greatest fucking psychiatrist since John! Just see you're good at, you slimy snake. Bravo! Good image. Brendan Groper. Just one more thing, sir. What? Stick a pineapple up your ass and pretend you're Hawaiian. Jesus. Damn it! Okay, there's a barrage of stuff happening in that clip. Yes. But at the very end of the clip, a sleeping Colonel Kane is awakened by the sound of a ruckus party in the back of a humongous fucking truck that looks like a dump truck that they possibly stole. Yeah, it might have been. Where a man is tied up with bikers partying all around him in the bed of the truck with a bunch of other bikers riding around that truck in a sort of parade type formation for no other reason than it just looks like they're doing this for a good old time that they're torturing this poor kidnapped man. The driver does nothing about it, nor does Colonel Kane. The driver just apologizes for the noise waking up Kane, who does tell him that it's absolutely all right. And they arrive at the repurposed castle, which leads to my second clip. 
It's all gold dialogue, it's man. Gold. It's gold. I, I don't disagree with you. I, I totally agree, but I just, it's, it's still funny. What's that in your hands? Fog Chinese junks have been reported in the area. Gotcha. Get back in line. Line. Hold on. Hey. You're supposed to be nice to us, Groper. We're sick. Here comes a psychiatrist, Groper. Better clean up your act. Yeah, call us pricks now, Groper. Go ahead. Hey, let's hear it for the shrink. Let's have a song. You are my sunshine. Out of sight. Oh, gentlemen. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. Off. Fuck you. It's very pretty. Famous lines from famous movies. Bravo. Oh, Frankie, your mother forgives me. <laughs> Victor McLaughlin and the Informer. We don't need no stinking badges. Treasure of Sierra Madre. All set, sir. Thank you, sir. Take care. Goodbye, sir. I love Goodbye. you. He's done it again. My jacket, my shirt, and my pants. Sir. Boys, come to attention. You've got to say Simon says, then we'll do it. Play. What a fine thought. Poor best. Simon says! But a psychiatrist, aren't you, Kane? Yeah, I thought so. I'm from on the medical office. Sure as hell glad you're with us. I can use all the help I can possibly get. Gotcha. Up yours. Just answer, President. <sighs> they are really far gone. Perhaps. Perhaps. What are you, Jungian, Freudian, some crazy new school of psychiatry? These guys are nuttier than a wagon load of pralines. From, from, where's from? Gentlemen, a fellow Would you please direct me to my quarters? What? My quarters. Would you please direct me to my quarters? Yeah, just follow the elevator. I beg your pardon? I said follow the... Here they are. Sergeant Krebs and Christian, sir. And bloody damn well about time. Now, will you get this man into surgery? Or are you planning to just let him stand here bleeding to death while you and your buddy play soldier? For Christ's sakes, what is this, a hospital or a nut house? What? No! No! Not the stethoscope! Don't let him wrinkle the past! I'm Colonel Richard Fell. I'm the medic. Boys. Really? Boys, aren't you being a little bit silly? Vincent? Try that again, please. You remind me of Vincent Van Gogh. Either that or a lock in a wheat field. I'm not sure which. It's closed. Have you been drinking? Never in uniform. Nope. I see. That's my last pair of pants he's got there, see? All the rest of them are out the cleaners. And, Colonel, if you're planning on my holding this salute much longer, would you mind calling Memorial Hospital and telling a donor arm is ready for transplant? I expect it to be falling off almost any second now. Oh, gentlemen. Thank you, sir. You're a prince of the realm, I swear. I'm a Shut your fucking mouth! Put... Listen, I know my rights. I want to see my urologist. Sir, Sir, I present the group.
Okay, now that we've got those two clips out of the way, because this is basically a giant introduction of the men. Yeah. And I didn't want to have like a giant like nine minute clip right off the bat from the start. Uh-huh. So I decided for two, roughly about two and a half to three minute clips instead. And in another minute, we're going to go into the nine minute long clip? Maybe. I don't know. Uh-huh. But basically what's going on, whenever the men realize that they have to quote unquote fall in and that someone is coming, they're all out there more or less because they're curious as to who's actually coming. But the main like, I guess, guard groper grouper whatever however you want to pronounce it he is trying to get them to be presentable in ranks as if they were supposed to be there military wise and every time he says fall in they won't listen to him whenever they're supposed to be heading down instead of going down staircases fairbanks the guy who at this point in time is dressed like a pirate decides to throw a rope over the side and climb down and you hear him in the first clip saying i'm coming down (laughs) and then the one guy who says this looks like a job for superman he's major nemic and he has an and S on his chest for now for his shirt and he thinks he's Superman so he constantly says things like my god this looks like a a job for Superman and he has a pair of glasses with no actual lenses in them and he takes the frames off whenever he talks and whenever he gives the quote as to Victor McLaughlin and the informer he first takes his glasses off to reveal that he is in fact Superman before he says it (laughs) Um, very little weird quirky character moments like that Yeah. now as everyone can kind of tell given from what they've heard in the clip if they haven't seen the movie and if you haven't yet shame on you we already spoiled the fuck out of it yeah why aren't you watching this movie (laughs) but uh cutshaw is pretty much the dude that's in charge all of the men follow him yeah for whatever reason they all latch on to him and i think it's because of his general nature and the sort of gentle kindness that he projects as a human being yeah and also it just seems like he's a really likable guy despite how inordinately weird and bizarre he intentionally acts to try and portray he's more mentally disturbed than he actually is Uh he is essentially this really likable charismatic guy and you see it in the show like this whole entire movie while you're watching it he really grows on you and you really like the guy and you really come to care about him and it's not just because you're seeing it through Kane's eyes who is succumbing to the same thing it's just that he is I feel that likable of a human being yeah he's a nice guy yeah I mean he may be a little bit eccentric he may do some crazy weird things but he is essentially dealing with a true mental illness But instead of dealing with it in a way that would be therapeutic, restorative, and helpful for himself, he is hiding behind the definition of mental illness for other people. Yeah. And he's going out of his way to doing that. And essentially what they're getting at in this military hospital that we've kind of seen so far is that a lot of these men may actually be mentally disturbed. But because it's a military-based hospital, they're coming from the place of they're all faking it and we have to prove it. Yeah. I mean, that's truly what this is about. And as far as groupers are concerned or groper or whatever the fuck his name is. Mm-hmm. I'd never pronounce it right. I never bothered to because <laughs> I hate his character. Yeah. I only real pronounce his name right by the end of the film. Because he kind of turns around at that point. Right. Then I'll give him respect. Yeah. But until then, no, right now, him. Right now he's an asshole. Yeah. But his belief is that you hear it in there where he's like, you're in trouble now. They're sending a psychiatrist. The best in uniform. The mm. best since Jung. Although yeah. he says Jung. Yeah. <laughs> which everybody hisses at because it's a psychiatrist, which is pretty funny. Yeah. So that's, that's basically what they've set up in both of these clips. As far as the guards are all concerned and as far as the medical professionals are all concerned and as far as Frome, who is one of the patients who thinks he's the medic yeah. is concerned these people are all fake or they're just completely crazy and don't even belong here in this program yeah and they're essentially trying to sort them out and or just basically do whatever they can to get them back on duty yeah and that's 
essentially that's what really all the military is going to do. Yeah, that's that's their whole purpose. Now, with this, the very end of that, where you hear the Hail Caesar and then they turn around, I have the feeling that because they talk about it later on, and I'm just going to bring it up here. There is a thing that Colonel Fell states where he says that the manual in the military for deciding whether or not someone is actually a Section 8 or is actually is mentally deranged and should not be in active duty yeah. is if they fall out of line and urinate on a field grade officer's leg. Yes. Which is literally what it sounded like. And from the look of Grouper's face, I think that's what happened to him. Yeah, I mean, I heard pee happening. You you can hear it. And the way that he just looks disgusted and says, Jesus, and then holds still, I'm pretty sure someone is pissing on his leg there. Yeah. I really wish they would have shown it. Me too. I I think that would have been great. It still makes me laugh. So with this, Colonel Kane surveys the men. Kane walks into the castle for his quarters as Cutshaw and Reno appear to be conspiring about something. And Fell looks on with very sad and concerned eyes. Now, I want to mention everybody that has seen The Walking Dead should know Cutshaw as Scott Wilson. Yeah, he played Herschel. They should recognize Reno as Jason Miller, and you'll recognize his voice when you hear it in the clips. Yeah. I don't know too many people that would recognize Ed Flanders right off the bat, but he's been in a ton of these kind of movies. Uh, George DeCenzo, who plays Fairbanks, the at this point crazy pirate. And of course, everybody's going to recognize Robert Loja. Robert Loja. And at some point, Krebs, played by Tom motherfucking Atkins, is the one who comes up to drag Frome away. And Frome is our writer and director, William Peter Blatty. Oh, there you go. So, yeah. And I mean, everybody should know Stacey Keach from Hammer and several other pictures and TV shows right. all over the place. He's a very venerable actor, I believe. Robert Loja. <laughs> yeah, but everybody's going to focus in on Robert Loja. Kane enters the castle and we cut to a sequence of Robert Loja in blackface singing to an Al Jolson song as we see the recreational areas of the castle for the patients. It's kind of like this weird sequence where you sh- it shows different cuts of a poster of Dracula, their ping pong table, like a couple of places where there's some paintings and things, and then no, yeah, Robert Loge is clearly in blackface. Yeah. Looks like he reached into the fireplace and grabbed soot and just rubbed himself down and then put on some white gloves to do this routine. That's, that's not a good look for you, Robert Loja. The weirdest part part about all this and the hardest thing to watch is the fact that fucking Major Nemec is just standing there, right? Yeah. Just standing there staring at him. Yeah. Like watching him and he looks kind of perplexed. Like he feels like he should be hurt but he doesn't really like know if he should or shouldn't be. Yeah. Because he's like, I don't think he's doing this out of malice to hurt me. It looks like he's just kind of like, this man's lost his nut. (laughs) He's completely off his rocker. Uh, There's the head cashew. Yeah, essentially. They cut from this to some of the men are playing poker and there are so many wild cards called out that it would be impossible for me to keep track of them and write them all down and tell you. Yeah. It's like deuces, threes, fours. He literally says like every card except for like five of them practically. Yeah. Like it's that long of a list. And when he names them all off, one of the guys looks at him and he goes, you're insane or you're a madman <laughs> or something like that. Which is one of the things that I love that they're constantly getting on each other's cases for being mentally disturbed. Yeah. But like almost like they're impressed at how crazy the other person is. <laughs> it's not like they're talking down about them. They're like, holy crap, I think you're sicker than me. You're actually, man, you're actually insane. I'm just here for a vacation. <laughs> kind of, which is what they keep alluding to, where some yeah. of these men are supposed to be faking it, but then you actually 
see where they do have serious mental issues. Yeah. On top of that, they're just playing it up because it's the only way the military will let them have any respite from this. The dealer then insists on cutting the deck several times. Reno states to him that most people only cut it once, which he then says, 13 is my lucky number. And if you count while he's doing it, when they pull away, he actually does cut it 13 times. Jesus. I like how I count how many times he cuts the deck, but yeah. I won't write down all the cards that he calls wild. Yeah, I know. Maybe you're the crazy one. I don't know. <laughs> I think I just noticed it because I was counting it off as I was watching the other stuff and taking my notes. Just, yeah, I, I don't know. Just, it's weird. And I zero indexed it too. Oh, yeah. No, that's, head. that's not crazy at all. You're fine. I'm a coder, man. I zero index everything. That's I, how I count now. It's okay. <laughs> so anyway, the other men appear to have a serious issue with this list of wild cards. They obviously can't remember it either. So he repeats it again. And if you pay attention, they changed. Yeah. He definitely changed them. And then there's some arguments about how that should just be jacks. Jacks are always wild or jokers. Jokers can always be wild. And they go back and forth about this and they just keep arguing. And as they're doing this argument, the barracks is then displayed even further. And we see Major Nemec changing in a makeshift phone booth because of course he will. He's Superman. Yeah, of course. He's getting ready for bed. He's taking off his fatigues and putting on his pajamas to go to sleep. Yeah. And that leads to our next clip. Why are you giving me your cards? Yep, I know what you mean. It was Amy Biltmore's place. She had it brought over here from uh, Germany in 1900, stone by stone. Belonged to her husband, the Count of Elts. Somebody you don't like it? It's hardly therapeutic. Yeah, exactly what Dracula said about it. But it's hidden away and it's free. Biltmore's letting us use it for nothing. Oh, wish I had said that. You remind me of someone. Who? I don't know. But you seem so familiar to me. Ah, Dracula said that too. You see, he sees a neck, he'll say anything. I guess it will come to me. What? Who you remind me of. Oh, gee, I said it. I hit it. No, work it, Colonel. But, sir, he's been pounding. I don't care what he's doing. You are not to put your hands on. But, Colonel, he can't hit. Yes, sir. Right, sir. Whatever you say, sir. You're Captain Fairbanks. Not today. Sorry. I was sure you were. Not today. You understand me. Multiple personality. My house has many mansions. Yes. I am Dr. Franz von Pauli. Why do you do that to war? Because I'm convinced that we can walk through walls. Not only me, anyone. Cops. People. People in Nashville. I try to exert the full force of my mind on all the atoms of my body so that they will mix and rearrange and fit exactly all the the holes in that wall. Then I try the laboratory method. I try to walk through it, through the wall, just like a few minutes ago when I took a running bash and I failed horribly. <laughs> I am punishing Adams. I am making an example of them, an object lesson, a thing. So when the other Adams see what's coming, they'll let me pass through. Independent snots. Shape up or ship out. No. Your grip is very, very strong. I think that your problem may lie in the properties of the hammer. Interesting theory. May I keep it for study? You're not going to play with it or anything. No, I won't. Okay. Good night. 
This exchange is the point when I first saw this film that I absolutely fell in love with it for multiple reasons. But I think I really love how Fairbanks, as he's discussing these things, segregates out types of people. Yeah. He says that he's convinced that we can walk through walls, not just him, but everybody. Cops, people. So he separates people from cops. Yeah. Which makes sense. And then he does a weird thing. He says people in Nashville. He separates people from people in Nashville. No, that totally makes sense. So it's like he's doing a hierarchy thing where people from Nashville might even have more of a power to walk through walls. Or maybe less of a power. Um, perhaps. One would, one would hope that it was be cops. <laughs> one would hope that it was definitely be cops that have less power to walk through walls. At the end of this discussion on the clip, we see Colonel Kane being watched by Gruber and that the colonel is staring at the hammer in his hand, frozen there for an inordinate amount of time. It's uncomfortably long how long he just stands there holding the hammer and looking at it, just yeah. frozen, like not even moving. It's disturbing. It is. It's weird. And the look on Stacy Keisha's face while he's doing this, to me just feels like he's just checked out. Like, there's nothing there. Like, he's in his own head and something else is going on. Yeah. He then notices that Gruber is staring at him and returns his gaze with a very harrowing and vacant stare. That look screams, get the fuck away from me before you die. Yeah. He just, he's gone. There's nothing there. There's, like, no humanity in those eyes at that moment. Nope. He, and there's, it's, it's terrifying. There's something else there. And I've talked long enough so that's our next clip yeah i know i had to kill a fifth of scotch last night just to get to sleep no 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 i don't believe in pills sleeping pills keep you awake anyway why should i have to explain that it's self-explanatory you want me to explain all right in a very short time you build up a tolerance right that's right you got it anyway he's here yeah yesterday no i don't know it's uh, it's too soon to tell yes i will yes i will thank you sir goodbye jesus don't blame me i told them not to operate well, you plan to get dressed? Well, how can I get dressed when Captain Throne won't surrender my pants? You don't want me to rip them off? No. Bet your ass to wrinkle the pants. Well, here you go. Case history's on the men. I've been through every one of them and haven't learned a blessed thing. I think this boy was a diabetic. May I come in? Uh, that's yours. So that's your couch. Why don't you make it a bed of nails? Then we can all see the blood pouring out. Cutshaw, the astronaut. I would say yes. God, my. You're the new boy, huh? I'm Colonel Hudson Kane. Do I call you Hud? Try calling him Colonel. Are you the one that makes the chicken? Colonel Kane's a psychiatrist. Sure. And they told me you were a doctor. This man treats crocodiles for acne. Why are we quibbling? Pack up and leave, Hud. You're on the way out. I'm acting on orders so to inform you. Who ordered you, Kutcha? Unseen forces, far too numerous to enumerate. Check the files. It's all in the files. Thank you. Here it is. Now read it, Hud. Read it out loud. It's my therapy. Why don't read it? Or I'll go crazy, damn it! I swear it, and you'll be responsible. All right, Kutcha. Please sit down. I think the end of the world just came for that bag of Fritos I had in my pocket. Would you please tell Frome I'd like my pants? Consider the lilies of the field. I'm waiting. Two days prior to a scheduled space shot, subject officer, while dining on the base, was observed to pick up a plastic ketchup bottle, squeeze a thin red line across his throat, and then to stagger and fall very heavily across a table, then being occupied by the director of the National Space Administration, gurgling, don't order the swordfish. You're looking at my metal, Hud. Stop looking at my metal. No, I'm not. Yes, you were. You covered it. The following morning, 
morning. Isn't it beautiful? Yes, it's very... Son of a bitch. I knew it. There you go. You were looking at it. Sorry. Sorry? What good is sorry? I'm a nervous wreck. He's a wreck. Christ, how can I sleep now waiting for a covetous, kleptomaniacal colonel to come creeping around to my bedside after taps to rip away my men? If I were to do that, you might awake. Like hell, I'd awake. Powerful drugs could be insinuated into my soup. Following morning. Covety is a sin. The following morning at 0500, subject officer entered his spacecraft. And upon receiving his instruction from control to begin his countdown, he was heard instead to say, I am frankly sick of being used. Sometime later, subject officer plainly stated that going to the moon was naughty, impolite, uncouth, and in any case, bad for his skin. What's the matter? You think that's funny? No. No, I don't. Pack up and leave, Hud. I've had it! Cutshaw, why won't you go to the moon? Why do camels have humps and cobras? None! Why'd you go? The man in the moon tried to fuck my sister. Cutshaw. The truth of the matter is custard. Called Sitting Bull a Sprite. Reasons are dangerous! What the hell's this? Oh, I believe. By Tehran. Show me a Catholic, and I'll show you a junkie. I need help. That's right. Once again, that fiendish Douglas has given me that horrible Michael Fairbanks. Look, I'm bleeding. This wound self-inflicted. My coronelito. You are not well. No, I'm fine. But your coloring is absolutely bilious. I want your name, badge number, and the name of every other boar in your group. You have the right to remain yeah. silent. It's reported of Cheney, perhaps. I have least anything you say. No more Dorian Gray. And will be used. <laughs> Ciao. You have the right to speak with an attorney and to have the attorney present. I know you want to be alone. You so desire and cannot afford it. Okay, I'm ready for my ink blot test now. It absolutely flips me. Now, while you're fresh with all those roses in your cheeks. That's all coming. It's a psychiatrist! My God, Rick! Help me! Casablanca. All right, Katja, please sit down. What do you see? An old woman in funny clothes blowing poison darts at a buffalo. Bison. I'm waiting. My whole life rushing past me in an instant. This one? Kafka talking to a bed bug. Correct. You're full of shit, you know that? I thought it was Kafka. You wouldn't know Kafka from Betty Davis. And you, you're a mental case. Yes, maybe I am. Ingratiating bastard. Do you always play kiss-ass with the loonies? No. I like you, Kane. You're regular. Take the medal. I'll take this book. What book? I Remember Mama by Oedipus Rex. All right. Now, by the fourth clip that I was playing, the reason that I grabbed that is it also establishes a lot about Cutshaw, and he very clearly is threatened by the idea of someone like Kane being there. Yeah. So he is lashing out, and he is trying to give him a very hostile environment, make it extremely uncomfortable and difficult for Kane to do his work. That's part of it. The other part of it is I do believe that he is putting on his maximum best performance to convince Kane that he is, in fact, every bit around the 
the Ben, mentally speaking, that he is portraying. Yeah. Because if he even shows a little bit of actually being better or whatever fits into the realm for military service as what is sane, what is, you know, justifiably okay to put them back onto active duty, he's just going to get pushed into whatever it was that he was doing. Even though we know he was a NASA pilot, he's still technically in the military as well. I think he's a Marine as well. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. he still could be pressed back so into he's probably, service. He's probably in the Air Force. No, it says he's a Marine. Oh, he's a, oh, oh, okay. A lot of these guys, some of the guys are in the Air Force, some of them are Marines, but Marines still have pilots as well. That's true. That's very true. Yeah. I believe. You forget or, that. No, is it the Navy has the pilots, Navy. and the Navy is the one who usually transports the Marines. I think the Marines are usually just grunts. Yeah, being Marines are, be, a Marine is part of the Navy. Well, Blatty's understanding of military service in this is very off. Okay. Because there are no psychiatrists in the Marine Corps that I know of. They usually farm out elsewhere. Yeah, probably get people to come in. So that's a conceit that he came up with that the Marine Corps would have uh, any kind of like resident psychiatrist types that are still in the Corps. He also has a lot of conceit about the various branches of the military being mixed together. But my idea is this is a highly experimental thing that they're doing towards the end of the Vietnam War, that they're trying to figure out what it is that they're going to do with these men and how to deal with the thousands more behind them, especially thanks to the Vietnam War. Right. And it's very it's very much at the end of the Vietnam War where they started experiencing this. So this is where a lot of these places were put. And this was not necessarily the last of them, but this specific place, I think it's number 18, is the most uh, experimental in nature for the type of restorative or uh, mental health facility that they were trying to put together. So they're willing to take more risks at this one than they were at the other one. So I would believe that they would mix up a lot of these guys, you know, depending upon their military backgrounds and that kind of thing. That one I can push the button on. But yeah, you're right. I don't know how a Marine ended up enough of a pilot to also become an astronaut. Yeah. Unless perhaps Cutshaw wasn't going to be a pilot. He was just going to be in the mission as one of the other guys. Maybe he's not flying it. But I think you all have to be able to fly it to go up there. No, I don't know if everyone has to be able to fly. There are plenty of people, probably mission specialists, who have nothing to do with flying. They Whatever their mission is up there, though. Right. So, I, but I don't know what a Marine would be doing in space, so yes, but I'm pretty sure if he had a better idea of how the military work, you would have had him as an Air Force pilot probably. or something, yeah. something like that. Yeah, but, even a, even a specialist of some sort, right? But the reason that it's Cutshaw and the reason that he is who he is, astronaut wise, and why he ends up here has a lot to do with the actual Exorcist. Oh yeah, in the novel of the Exorcist and also in the movie, there is a scene where Reagan's mother is having a party. Yes, Reagan comes down in front of the party, looks directly at a man sitting at the piano playing in a military uniform and says, you're going to die up there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's That is Captain Cutshaw. Is it? They make it more obvious in the book but that is Captain Cutshaw and he's about to go on his mission to the moon and her saying that to him shakes him to his core and terrifies him because why would a little girl, first of all, know who he is and how could she say such a horrible thing to him kind of deal? And then she starts peeing on the floor. Right. Which is also very disturbing. Which is also upsetting. But that sort of thing transfers that, that modicum of doubt and that serious amount of fear. A dollop of fear and a modicum of doubt is what she, she gives to him. That's the recipe that That's she throws That's a nice little on. recipe. Yeah. 
Yeah. For going into the uh, going into a hospital. Now, according to Blatty, the novels, The Exorcist, The Ninth Configuration, and then his novel Legion, which became Exorcist 3, they're a sort of spiritual trilogy because they are dealing with some of the same ideas. Yeah. Exorcist deals with the problem of evil. The Ninth Configuration deals with the... Human condition? Existential dread of atheism versus the comforting peace and tranquility you will find by simply just believing in a god. That's ba- because he's a fucking Jesuit, so of course yeah. he's going to go that route with it. Yeah. And he's very ham-handed in this movie with that, and I'm I'm fine with that. That's that's cool. You are really cool with that. It's There's weird. There's plenty of other things about the film that I love that I let that go. Yeah. And then Legion, and then also um, The Exorcist 3, its theme is more dealing with humanity coming to terms with the idea that they are worthy of salvation. Yeah. Even though a lot of the book shows all of the horrible things that we do that make us deserve damnation, and then the movie more so. Yeah. Especially the edited, chopped down Morgan Creek version that I don't know if we'll ever get a full version of the Exorcist 3 or not. All right. So I'm mentioning all three of those things because it's important to note why Cutshaw is where he is and where that comes from in the books. There you go. That's interesting. I didn't know that. That's nice. Nice little tidbit of information there. Little morsel. During the clip, we see the med center set up with a self-service center that includes lemon drops, a suggestion box, and then they show Fell pouring scotch into a cup with Alka-Seltzer. So he's actually, like, right as he's making the call, they're showing all of these things as he's talking, and that was during the clip. And at the end of the clip, Cutshaw walks out with the book on faith by Teon. And I love how he says it's I Remember Mama by Oedipus Rex. I love that joke. Okay. Oedipus? Yes. Yes. Okay, yeah. <laughs> The last clip that I just played that we're, we were kind of discussing also has probably the most well-emulated version of Marx Brothers style, quick-paced, back-and-forth dialogue, rapid-fire jokes mm-hmm. that I have seen. Yeah. And my love of this film sparked my love of the Marx Brothers. There you go. I had known of them, and I had maybe seen a few things here and there, and I knew about them because of Looney Tunes. But in watching this film and exposing other friends of mine to it, they also were like, you need to check out the Marx Brothers. You yeah. love this stuff. So. <laughs> That's kind of where my love of the Marx Brothers came from is from this film. So this is what really got me looking at past comedy more than anything, like way past my purview of stuff like even before the 60s and things that my parents exposed me to. He even kind of turns to look back at Kane and he gives a little bit of a smile thinking that he may have rocked that situation. Yeah. And it gives us a sense that he sees some form of hope in this new psychiatrist that not necessarily maybe will be able to become at peace and be cured, but more like he will be able to sort of manipulate this man and walk circles around him. Yeah. And so he feels like the, him and his friends will be safe at this institution and they can't they, they can't use Kane to force them back into their military service. Well, they act, yeah, I mean, actually he's smarter than that. He gets the feeling that maybe he's smarter than this doctor. He feels like it, yeah. yeah. Like yeah. he's totally manipulating Kane is what he feels like. That yeah. He's in charge of the situation. And so it's like a half knowing smirk, half sinister smirk, but also half relaxed. Also thinking maybe he bought his little... That's three halves. I don't think that's how it works. Or, you know, yeah, a part. I said part and a half. Yeah. I said part. Part of it's also, I think he thinks, okay, he bought my little show here, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's like this weird sense of satisfaction mixed with the other things that we were talking about. Cutshaw also appears to be struggling with his own beliefs based on the way he reacts to the book before taking it. It's almost like he's looking for some kind of an explanation to know what it is that he's feeling, but he also seems to be very much more anti-religion than myself. Yeah. I love where he says the line, you show me a cat 
Catholic and I'll show you a junkie and then rips the colonel, a colonel sleeve all the way up to his shoulder to look for track marks on his arm. Yeah. And the colonel doesn't even like react to it. Just lets it go. Yep. Just is like, it's almost like he's shut down when you look at it with the right kind of eyes and realize why he reacts that way. But the film makes it seem like he's reacting that way because the colonel is trying to allow the men to just be themselves and reveal who they are by their actions. Yeah. The medal is a St. Christopher medal engraved with, I am a Buddhist in case of accident, call a llama, <laughs> which I've actually considered trying to have made. Really? Yeah. I wouldn't wear it. I would just have it to have it. You should have a bracelet. And like, you know, some people that do not resuscitate bracelets, you should just say, I'm a Buddha. If trouble, contact I'm a, a llama. Buddhist in case of accident, call a llama. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I don't want a llama. You don't want a llama? No. I don't want any religious folks trying to like coax me into their horse shit right before I die. What if someone actually tried to get you the animal, the llama? Well, now we're talking. Yeah, now you're see that's going to help you in an emergency situation a llama yeah it'll yeah. spit on everything and make it in like completely insanitary exactly or unsanitary however you want to look at it <laughs> kane asks cutshaw's religion to which fell responds to read the files that it is all in the files which cutshaw also kind of you know <laughs> likes to point out that everything's always in the files cutshaw returns with fell's pants that frome continues to steal and i love fell's obsession with wrinkled pants yeah <laughs> you don't want me to tear them from him do you no no Bet your ass it'll wrinkle the pants. <laughs> and then he pulls a very serious Harpo routine where he does the squeaking as a response and he's even wearing the Harpo hat. Yeah. Very much being a Marx brother. Oh, yeah. Which, given the age of where this film comes from book-wise and then also when it was actually made, that influence of the Marx brothers would still be very strong with the generation that would be making this. You you would think, yeah. Yeah. So it totally makes sense as to yeah, why Yeah, that does that make sense. And I love that his particular, like, horn that he uses is like a bike horn that he stuck on top of a like walking stick yeah so like when he walks with it and he actually uses it that way as a walking stick it honks every time he takes a step that's not bad yeah it's kind of funny i, yeah, I like the way that he's nice that. all right then we see a dog roams its way into the office and starts chewing on fell's pants upsetting fell as he screams out god damn it not the pants <laughs> from the way that fell is reacting i have a feeling that these are his last pants and that you know well he said all the all other ones left. are at the cleaners so yeah but are they though or is these just the last ones that he has he might be the last ones he has. All right. And Reno enters right after the dog starts chewing on the pants. And that leads to our next clip. Now, do I have to put up with your temperament this early? All right, morning? Reno. All right. Sorry, Colonel. Mm-hmm. It's hard to keep track of these. Major Grover. Let him be. But Colonel, he's been... All right. The men may see me whenever they need to. You heard whatever you say, sir. Yes, sir. Quit drinking buttermilk daiquiris in the closet, Grupper. That man is a lunatic and dangerous. Once, one night, I was walking the grounds. I hear this whispering, see, and I look. And up in the branches of this cypress tree, there's Groper, the crazy bastard, talking in whispers with an owl. What? A big black and white owl. They're common. I couldn't testify to what they were saying. They were whispering, understand me? I couldn't hear them clearly. And what I don't know for a fact, I don't say. That's the kind of hairpin I am. Reno. No, sir, their words weren't clear, really, sir. Believe me. But there isn't a cypress tree on the ground. Doctor, it's easy to dig up a tree. And then anyone with money can fill in the hole. I didn't think of that. No, you didn't. Is this your dog? What does it look like, my zebra? What do you call him? Irresponsible. He's ten minutes late for rehearsal. Out, Sir Lawrence. Lieutenant Reno is adapting Shakespeare's plays for dogs. Labor of love, a fucking headache, but goddammit, somebody's got to do it. 
we're just getting into Julius Caesar. Want to come to rehearsal? We're doing that terribly gripping scene where this very noble-looking Dalmatian whips his toga around himself thusly and snarls, Et tu, White Fang. I'd like to ask your opinion about a problem in Hamlet. You see, if I cast a great Dane in the role, they're going to accuse me of being... Excuse me. Lieutenant Spinell, my casting director. Hiya, fellas. See, we're looking for talent. So far, this production is a one-dog show. Who's that? I thought maybe Rosencrantz or Guildenstern. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are males. This dog is a female. So we take a license. Get the fuck out of here. Okay, it was only a suggestion. You go find these other must next time. Yeah. Cash. Sorry. Cash, yes. What about with that, that time? I'm sorry, Sir Lawrence. Jesus, why do I live like this? One roll and he thinks he's Barbara Streisand. Yeah, what about Richard III? I've crippled that little dog. You read the classics. It improves the whole respiratory system. Richard III had a hump. What about a hump on his back? Okay. So they get these other guys cast cash. It's one day. Anon. Quiet. I asked for Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, and what did you bring me? Tiny Alice. I want Dobermans. I want even a colleague. Stop breaking my phone. Fairbanks, it is one of my multiple personalities. I am Sister Eve Black. I understand. The Little Sisters of the Poor is a recognized charity, Krebs. Fuck off. Are they all that bad? He was flying those planes we got from the Germans, you know, the ones that take off from the vertical and then fly straight. 24 of the damn things crashed for no reason at all, and right after number 24, Fairbanks found out he could talk to trees. You think they're faking it then? I don't know. I only got here myself a week ago. Biggest mystery is cut show, I guess. Why him? He wasn't in combat. Why should he fake it? And what about Reno? The man holds the Congressional Medal of Honor. Now, he's, he's pretending insanity to get out of combat. But I'll tell you one thing. They all have high IQs. Some of them near genius, as a matter of fact. Most other fakery I've heard about in the Corps comes under the category of falling out of parade in front of the reviewing stand and urinating, preferably on some field-grade officer's leg. I don't know. Maybe it would just fish out of water. What was that? I just think about sickness, cancer, and children. Earthquakes, war, painful death, death, just death. If these things are just part of our natural environment, why do we think of them as evil? Why do they horrify us so? Unless we were meant for someplace else. I don't think evil grows out of madness. I think madness grows out of evil. Hell, I don't know. Maybe you ought to give them all shock treatment, you know? <laughs> Might shake out the phonies. What do you think? Yeah, I hate it. I'll see you later. The crux of the issue is dealt with right there with some of the things that Kane is saying. And it's almost like he's not even talking to Fell at this point, but he doesn't realize that he's no longer talking to Fell, that he's just yeah. staring out the window and he disappears. Uh-huh. But the line that stuck with me the most from the film, from this kind of diatribe that we just had there, was that some people think that evil comes from madness, but Kane states that madness actually comes from evil. Mm-hmm. And that is so affecting when you think about it. Yeah. Because it's the evil that we do to each other that can cause madness, mental illness in others. Mm -hmm. We damage each other on a regular basis. And it's the baggage that our parents and everyone around us puts on us when we're young that reacts to us and makes us the anxiety ridden pieces of shit that we are when we get older. Fucking hey, man. (laughs) So thanks, mom and dad and everyone else, I suppose. I love being a piece of shit, I guess. (laughs) Now, at the end of the clip, we see Kane has shut down. As Fell leaves, we notice that he not only shut down, but that Kane is breaking down and that he is in serious tears. 
Yeah, he is really, and that's, this is when you kind of, well, I mean, throughout this whole thing, you're getting a feeling like there's something wrong with him, but this is the first time you're like, okay, well, yeah. it's, it's, uh, the doctor's in need of some doctoring, I think. He looks like he is in the grip of a horrendous sadness, the likes of which you've only really seen at a funeral. Yeah. Like, I don't know how else to describe it, but that's what it looks like. Depression, a feeling of loss. Right. Like, I've only ever seen something that prominent in grief as far as an actual human being kind of thing at a funeral where you've yeah. seen that kind of display of grief. And Stacey Keish is really fucking good at acting with his face like that. He, he just pulls this area of pain and just shows it to you. And it's so unsettling. And you just, you don't want to look. Yeah. You just want to stop looking at it. Uh, it just feels bad. Yeah. It's just so wrong. Like, yeah. Everything about it. And you're like, what could possibly be making him feel this awful this early in his venture to try and help these men mm -hmm. and it's just so disheartening and so uncomfortable yeah and the movie just doesn't deal with it you're just left with it while we go into other things yeah because the film then dissolves to the river outside the castle and then to the guards posted at the entrance with the little guardhouse we then see the castle at night as krebs does his guard duty that's tom motherfucking atkins for those that is at home. todd motherfucking atkins making his rounds around the recreational area of the castle and shutting off some of the lights. He's just basically doing his nightly rounds, I'm just guessing. Just like it's nighttime. Right. Get the place ready for night. Following this, we see Kane up late, working at his desk and taking notes on the men as he pours over all of their files. The camera moves into his notes, and we see he is writing the words shock, treatment, and then curative, and then he underlines the word curative a couple of times. Yep. He has a reaction action to the thunder and we hear the words what are you holding repeated in like a whispering tone what are you holding what are you holding like over and over yep and then all of a sudden that disappears as krebs walks in to check on kane kane asks for fell krebs tells him he has signed out for the day kane wants access to the drug locker because a patient may need a thorazine injection i do believe he is referring to robert loja's character who needs the thorazine injection yes because his mental illness is actually probably caused from catching some type of bacterium or malaria or something like that. I'm not but, sure what. And also, he just thinks, he doesn't even think he's on planet Earth anymore. No, and he refuses to accept the fact that he's surrounded by... Humans. Yeah, he he's, calls them Venusians, and he talks about how he was in Mars later on and stuff was, like that. He thinks he's on Venus. Right now. Yeah, right now. And he thinks they're all made out of fungus. Yes. <laughs> well, he finds that only Fell actually has the key to the drug locker, so Kane asks that Krebs see to it that Fell reports to him the minute he returns in the morning. Upon leaving, Kane picks up Cutshaw's medal and pulls the necklace out between his hands and holds it up essentially like a garrote. Like, it's almost instinct that he automatically goes to that with the wire. We hear once again, Colonel, what are you holding? What are you holding? And then we hear the line, I cut off his head with a wire and he kept on talking. Both things are repeated quite a few times in the background and whisper while he's sitting there just holding the necklace as if it's a garrote, really driving the point home while while he's holding the garrote and you hear that I caught off his head with a wire and he just kept on talking. Yeah. And that line is really disturbing to me. It really is. The man. first time you hear it when he's holding that necklace you're like what the fuck is wrong with what this guy? What the hell's going on around here? Cutshaw enters in beach attire complete with flippers which make a horrible noise every time he walks. He's also holding on to a sand shovel and a pail and he even has a giant beach towel. This is one of my favorite discussions of all time in this film and our next clip let's go to the beach it's night and it's raining i see you're determined to start an argument go to bed please uh 
There's nothing less attractive than a psychiatrist who pouts. Gotcha. What do I have to do just to get in a word with you? Offer sacrifice? Then here, I brought you a mud pie. Now can I talk to you? Will you talk about the moon? Listen, everyone knows the moon is roped. I've come here to talk about Colonel Fell. What about him? Major Namek approached him this morning, complaining of a strange and wondrous illness. And do you know what that heartless butcher prescribed? He said, here, take this. It's a suicide pill with a mild laxative side effect. What kind of bedside manner is that? I freak the arrow of peace. Why do you wear that armband? Because I'm in mourning for home. For God. If God exists, then he's a fake, or more likely a foot. A giant, all-knowing, all-powerful foot. I don't belong to the God is alive and hiding in Argentina Club. But I believe in the devil, all right. You know why? Because the prick keeps doing commercials. Original sin might be real. Hello, operator. Maybe it was something genetic. Can you prove there's a foot? There are some arguments from reason. Are those the things we use to justify dropping atomic bombs on Japan? I'm sorry we had to rush out like this. When he got news of what we were trying, he hit the ceiling. We needed all the help we could get, and in a hell of a hurry. Think we convinced him? Oh, yeah? He bought it? God, I hope so. I know how you feel. You do? No, I, I guess I don't. Well, that's life, huh? Take it easy. I, I sure hope it all works out for you. Yeah. Every kind thought is the hope of the world, right? See you later. Oh. Horatio, get me a greyhound. I said, get me a greyhound. Greyhound. That's right. Laertes. Pekingese. You want to play him three feet off the ground? I want people to wonder about him. That'll do it. Why the fuck are you bothering me? Polonius. Laertes is supposed to be a foil to Hamlet. Polonius. I swear I'm going to hit you in the mouth. Polonius. A chow. Pretty. No, a chow ain't that bad. What the fuck are you doing? I think he's suffocating. Good night, sweet friends. Bananas. I am telling you, Kane is the one who's crazy. He just sat there doing this. All the time doing this. Hell, he never even saw me. I want you to drop like an overripe mango. A lot of psychiatrists are deeply disturbed. They've got the highest suicide rate of any profession in the world. Now, that's a fact. You can check it, Captain Billy. Mm-hmm. What the hell were you doing in the clinic? I had cookies in my teeth, raisins and crap like that, you know? I needed some dental floss. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, he is Gregory Peck in Spellbound. He comes to take over the mental asylum and he's nuts himself, I swear it. It's just like that picture. I took a fork and in the tablecloth in front of him, I made ski tracks and he fainted. You kindly have the goodness to admit that you're able to read my thoughts, that my spaceship crashed on the planet Venus, that this is Venus and you are a Venusian, that you have illegally invaded my mind. Make me believe that I'm still on Earth. Believe that this is all a demonic, hypnotic illusion. This is not Earth. You're not an arch man! Stand here and fungus up to my asshole, you bastard! You're a giant burning! Please give me back my flying belt. Hold you to escape, I swear to God. Give me the flying belt. Oh. <laughs> I want to play take a bell and drag in a fungoid production of Peter Pan. Larry Victor. Can I help you with anything, sir? All? Mm-hmm. At all, listen. One brain medication was indicated here. <laughs> Colonel Fell isn't back yet, sir. Yeah, he's not back. You know where he is? He's up there with my flying belt. <laughs> You're gonna drag my flying belt! Oh, my flying belt! You're gonna drag my I urge you to be I want There are lots of sick people in this house, and many of them are sleeping. This is embarrassing. I'm terribly sick. Captain Cutcho, Vincent. In order for life to have appeared spontaneously on Earth, 
that first had to be hundreds of millions of protein molecules, the ninth configuration. Vincent. But given the size of the planet Earth, do you know how long it would take for just one of these protein molecules to appear entirely by chance? Vincent. Roughly 10 to the 243rd power billions of years. And I find that far, far more fantastic than simply believing in a god. What are you? Shouldn't sleep like that. Wrinkles of pants. What time is it? 8-ish. 8.15. You got word you were looking for me? Where are you? Personal matter. I've got an uncle in trouble. Any way I can help? No, no. I'm sorry. We're doing all we can. I appreciate it, though. Thanks. What's up? Oh, Captain Bendish could have used some sedation. Please make up a duplicate key to the drug chest. We had to break into it. I think it'd be better if we both had a key. Boy, you look beat. Did you get any sleep? I dropped off another one of the men was at the door. Keep it closed. No. They've got to be able to talk to me anytime they need to. It's up to you. Something wrong. Something right. Dream. I didn't get you. I just flashed on this dream I keep having. Well, as Caesar's wife said to Sigmund Freud, you tell me yours and I'll tell you mine. It isn't my dream. I didn't get you. I said, it isn't my dream. What, you rent it? Patient, a colonel, back from Nome. He had this grotesque, recurring nightmare. Something that happened to him in combat ever since he told me about it. I keep dreaming. Jesus, now it's strange. Weird is the word. I mean, that's carrying transference a little far, isn't it? It was my brother. Patient? Yes. Oh, my God. Twin brother? Yeah, well, still that, uh, that would explain it, wouldn't it? I mean, um, you're psychically attuned, you're brothers, you're close. No, we're not. Must be. Well, have you ever heard of Killer Kane? Buck Rogers? No, Killer Kane, the Marine. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, guerrilla warfare guy killed 30, 40 guys with his hands? More than that. What's the point? He's my brother. Bullshit. No, it's true. You're kidding. Wish I were. Uh-huh. And you two guys don't get along, huh? What's the beef? He's a murderer. He's a Marine. They drop him behind the enemy lines. He does his duty. Let's forget it. You sure you know what business you're in? I mean, those recruiting office sergeants can be pretty snaky from time to time. Vincent. Vincent. Are you a friend of Jane Fonda? We're close. Kidding. I'm kidding. Drug. So many doctors get hooked on drugs. Oh, well. Hey, uh, how is your brother, by the way? You know, I met him once over in Korea. Kind of pal around together, as a matter of fact. I like him. I like him a hell of a lot. He's dead. Oh, holy Christ. Hey, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. It's all right. Yes? Come in. Colonel Kane, if I see you for a second, listen, I gotta go, you guys. I'll see you later, huh? All right, there's a good amount of stuff to try and unpack with that. Yeah. All right, first of all, counterpoint to Kane's argument, protein molecules don't appear entirely by chance. In order for life to be established anywhere, things have to meet the right conditions at the right points for that to happen. But that doesn't mean that it's entirely by chance just because a divine hand doesn't say, let there be light and it happens. Things happen for a reason as all of the factors come into play to make life happen. That's how that works. Yes. Just because a god doesn't just automatically scoop something up and turn it into life from dust doesn't mean that that's the only way it can happen. But in his belief, it is. But his whole science explanation as to how long it would take for that type oh, of protein yeah, molecules. Oh, that's horseshit. Yeah. <laughs> it's pseudoscience horseshit that someone came up with as an argument to try and state that it's so much easier to believe in a god and it's so fantastical and so unbelievable that that many protein molecules of that ninth configuration could exist but that is where the title came from the idea that for life to appear on earth spontaneously it would require the protein molecules of the ninth configuration yeah they said the movie title in the movie and that's what makes us who we are is this particular protein molecule that would appear on earth to make life happen you know what molecule makes me who i am alcohol okay whatever and drugs now at the end 
end of the clip, we actually see Fell devastated as he oh. exits the room in tears. And you are did this really had me going, man. I was like, what the fuck's happening? Why is this guy crying like that? And then I was like, well, he said he knew the brother. And I'm like, I don't know, man. This is seemed weird, but yeah. But Ed Flanders as Fell in this actually does a really good job of walking that line of how he's treating Kane. And in this scenario, you feel like him learning that Vincent is dead mm-hmm. and that Hudson is the one that's standing there in front of him and that they may have been friends or that they were pals is what made him sad. But then you also notice that Fell states drugs whenever he's trying to talk to Kane. Yeah. And Kane doesn't really respond properly to things and is sort of a little out of it. Yeah. And he basically, Fell knows at this point that Kane broke into the drug chest for himself. Probably. I'm guessing that he is sedating himself because the voices in his head that are asking him, what are you holding? What are you holding? And uh, cut off his head with a wire and they kept on talking. Those repeating voices and some of the nightmares, which we clearly hear. That whole discussion of him, uh, Captain Cutshaw, and it takes place on the moon and there's a cross on the moon that the that the astronaut like holds his arms up in revelry to and all yeah. of that during that discussion and all of the various other imagery that's going on. That is Kane's dream. And what is happening is that's Fell's voice saying Vincent. It's as though Fell's voice is trying to talk to him to wake him using the name of Hudson Kane's brother. Vincent over and over again to get a response from Hudson about it. Yeah. And they do it very subtly, but it took me a little while to realize that that's what's happening where he's like, he's sedated. So he's in this like drug induced sleep and he's thinking these thoughts and he's trying to come at a way to try and convince Cutshaw that there is a foot. Yeah. An all knowing, all powerful foot. (laughs) and his description of the ninth configuration and all of that it may be him replaying a discussion because it feels like Kane and Cutshaw have been going round and round in these quiddled debates and arguments for quite a while yes and this may be like an argument that's replaying in his head when he sedated himself or it may be him coming to terms with trying to approach it in another direction to talk with Cutshaw in this dream and he is being awoken by Ed Flanders character of Fell over and over again by hearing the name Vincent and it's like his brain is resisting it because it wants to work out this thing in the dream. Yeah. And then he finally wakes up from like one of the last Vincents. I just, I thought it was so heartbreaking because the doctor so far throughout this movie has been kind of like the light heart of the movie, you know? Particularly this one. He's more obsessed with whether or not his pants will get wrinkled and if they're where he expects them to be than anything else. And he's always got to like a little wisecrack for everyone and all that. And then to see him to walk out and just break down like that. Well, well, Nemec came to him with a complaining of a strange and wondrous illness, which I would assume is constipation. Yes. And then he s- prescribed to him a suicide pill with a mild laxative side effect. Yeah. <laughs> As a joke. You know, that's yeah. just kind of how he no, jokes. That's, with, I, yeah. He's one of my favorite characters in this movie. And so then to see, you know, him break down like that, that oh, really tears yeah. at you. Yeah. Anytime any of these actors break down, they are giving their all. D- and know, it is super fucking heartbreaking. And I know I should probably really wait for the end of the movie, but I got to gush in the acting in this film. It is fucking top notch. Well, we've seen that already in the clips yeah. and what's been happening in the film not only not only like with Cutshaw and the way that he reacts to things and how he's discussing things that discussion about foot and you know like how life is supposed to be created at the start whenever he's arguing about the beach and then offering a mud pie and yeah. all of that where he's bouncing back and forth between trusting Kane and being
being vulnerable and then attacking Kane and being on the defensive and pretending like he's more crazy than he actually probably is. Yeah. Like that bounce back and forth is really hard line to walk. And I think Scott Wilson does an amazing job at that. He does. I, and he plays it out on his face and the tears in all of their eyes. Like yeah. if you have any empathy at all, the way that these men hold their faces and the way that they look, it'll just cut you right into particularly Ed Flanders display of grief as fell here. Yes. That is just so oh my God. disturbing. Yeah. And just like, it just breaks your fucking heart. It does. Man. And then yeah. like, did this, does this get nominated for anything? No, this was, and I can't believe it wouldn't have been like when it was released, this is the type of movie that would have, think would have been picked up. It was ignored. Wow. It was avoided. It was buried and no one even really knew anything about it except for a very small handful of folks like myself that found it through whatever means and have been championing it for decades. That's just too bad. Yeah, it's a fucking crime. Yeah. Now, we also need to talk about Lieutenant Spinell and our wonderful Joe Spinell. The teaming of Jason Miller as Reno and Joe Spinell as Lieutenant Spinell, Mm -hmm. who are adapting Shakespeare's plays for dogs. Yes. Their dynamic is some of the best comedy in this movie. it's fucking hilarious. And apparently they hung out outside of the set as well. Yeah. And you know stories about Joe Spinell, right? No. Dude loves his party. Oh, did he? Yes. Or does he? Yes. Well, he did. He did. Is he, he no longer does. He's yeah. been deceased for a long time. Yeah, that was what I thought. So now they filmed this in Budapest, which at the time was under communist control. Oh wow! In some of the interviews that I was watching when I was waiting for you to come over, yeah, Jason Miller and Richard, I think his name is Lynch. He's the biker that wore the shirt that says "Wanna Fuck" and has the burned up face. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Both of them had stated that it took Joe Spinell a matter of just a few hours to find the black market once they got to Budapest. Really, and that he was procuring drugs and alcohol for everybody and that it was extremely cheap there because of the transfer rate and the dollar to whatever Budapest money base is. Uh-huh. So they had a very fun time thanks to Joe Spinell's hard work at procuring drugs and alcohol for them. Nice. On the black market. Ooh. So that's the kindest guy Spinell is. Or was. <laughs> was, yeah. <laughs> Alright, so at the very end of the clip, that's when a Gruber walks in he starts talking to Kane behind a closed door and then felt basically attempts to compose himself from this very obvious and very moving display of grief but he's unable to kind of compose himself so he just kind of moves away and they cut from this to Kane and Gruber on the inside of his office Kane's office that is and Kane is reading a love letter clearly written by a mentally divergent man there's something about in my dreams I'm a madman I rip away your bra and then your dress and then your glasses or something like that it's like completely out of order on how you would disrobe somebody yeah right I just like that makes no sense yeah and he talks about um you know how he would love to love this woman and it's a very bizarre but very clearly written by a mentally divergent madman yeah and it's a letter that Gruber brought to him now apparently this was set up so that many women were sent the letters at once and it was made up to look like a mass commercial mailing he says you can tell where it was memeographed so basically somebody wrote this made a bunch of copies about it and then made up a bunch of mass commercial mailings where it just says to occupant yeah (laughs) someone was casting an extremely wide net oh yeah man possibly in an attempt to get grouper laid if tinder maybe yeah if tinder existed they would have swiped left on every one of them or right i don't know which one <laughs> under is an the account they made with a photo yeah, they snagged yeah, of yeah, him. yeah yeah they would have swiped like just positive whichever one way it is 
left or right. His outrage at this incident and demand for more restrictions finds Kane in a highly suggestible mood. The reason for all of this anger and outrage is because some of the women who had nice voices on the phone when they called for him, he invited to the castle and they're all unattractive to him and that's why he's angry. Yes. What a prick. He is a damned prick. I genuinely believe that whoever did this was their way of trying to get Groper laid just so he would stop being an asshole. Maybe. Or just to fuck with them because they know it would annoy him. But like, he, they wouldn't have known what these people look like by, by the way that they made up the address. It was just a maybe. wide net that they're casting to try and get but, him laid. Well, maybe. And I'm just saying, but maybe, you know, it didn't matter what they look like. They just thought it would, you know, people just seemed to piss this guy off. So it would be like anybody coming up to it would piss him off. Possibly. Yeah. Or perhaps as it is stated later on, he actually is in the closet and them doing this to him is what angered him even more. Yeah, it could be. Again, with Groper, I almost wonder if he did this to himself. And is he actually a patient in this asylum who has this control thing where he wants to be in charge and like the head guard? If he, if he is, you know, they never really go into it. So no, I don't think he it's is. It's never revealed and they never yeah. really like say that that's the case. But for most of this film, you kind of wonder because he's every bit as overly like like excitable and like agitated about everything to the point where you feel like he might be mentally divergent But maybe that's too. the whole point why he thinks everyone's faking it. He's like, I act like these people and I'm normal. Possibly. I honestly See, that's don't why know. I don't think so because he's also involved in a lot of the personal like real people meetings with authorities and stuff which if he were actually like a patient, I don't think they would let him no, involved yeah. in that. I agree with you there but yeah. at this point we haven't seen that yeah. yet. Yeah, oh okay. So you're just about this point. Yeah. yeah, so you may be right. You're like, is he maybe like, you know, the one doctor who fooled Kane? Like Frome, yeah. Yeah, Frome, who fooled Kane. Is this guy just doing the same yeah. fucking thing? It also reveals just how highly suggestible Kane is, and it's like they described Donald Trump's presidency and the way that he handles it, Yeah, where it's literally the last person that talked to him basically gets the action that they want done, because he just goes along with whatever anybody tells him, so he doesn't have to actually do anything. Yeah. Only in Kane's case, he feels like maybe they do need some more restrictions because this has clearly gotten out of hand, but he is still highly suggestible and is going for whatever Groper has to sell him. He really is. They cut from this to the castle at night, and Fairbanks is struggling with a soda machine while dressed as a nun for one of his personalities. He still has his sword from his pirate personality, however, and he clutches at his rosary whenever the soda machine doesn't work right. He even says something like, come on, and then shakes the rosary at it, and then it works. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Hey, man, listen, sometimes you have to use the power of God to get your Coca-Cola. The power of Christ compels machines. <laughs> the power of Christ compels you. Give me my Pepsi. While this is happening, Reno begins to talk to Kane with yet another heavily influential clip in causing me to love this film, which is our next clip. Dr. Fell, you're wanted in surgery. You're having this argument. A monster, and I want you to settle it once and for all. Some Shakespearean scholars, hold this, please. Some Shakespearean scholars, thank you. Some Shakespearean scholars say that when Hamlet is pretending to be crazy, he really is crazy, correct? That's right. Now, other Shakespearean scholars say that when Hamlet is pretending... Other Shakespearean scholars say that when Hamlet is pretending to be nuts, he really isn't nuts, it's an act. Please give me your opinion. I would like to hear yours first. Ah, terrific psychiatrist. That's class. Pretty. 
Why don't you go and knock your little fucking armadillo fell? No, really, I'm, uh, I'm listening. I'm terribly interested. Your interests are coextensive with Miro's ass on Sunday mornings. Heavy concept, Frankie. Jesus. Now listen. Now, Colonel, considering how Hamlet is acting, is he really and truly crazy? Yeah, no. You're both wrong. Now think what happens. First, his father dies. Then his girl leaves him flat. Then there's an appearance by the father's ghost. Bad enough. Then the ghost tells him he was murdered. And by whom? By Hamlet's uncle, who recently married Hamlet's mother. Now that by itself is a hell of a hang-up, because Hamlet liked his mother a lot. But then we're agreed Hamlet's insane. No, he's not. He is pretending. But if Hamlet hadn't pretended to be crazy, he really would have gone crazy. Mm-hmm. You see, Hamlet isn't psycho. He's hanging on the brink. A little shove, a little teensy, eensy, little eensy push, and the kid's gone. Bananas whacked out. So his unconscious mind makes him do what keeps him sane, namely acting like he's nuts. See, because acting crazy is a way to let off steam. A way to get rid of your fucking aggressions. A way to get rid of your fears and your terrors. If I did what Hamlet does in this play, they'd lock me up, they'd put me in prison, they'd punish me, sure. Him, Prince, royal garbage man, gets away with murder, and why? Because nuts are not responsible. Meantime, the crazier Hamlet acts, the more he indulges himself, the healthier he gets. Yes, I think I'm waiting. I think I agree with your theory. Yes, there! You see? Do you understand that now, you dumb, stupid mm. idiot? From now on, we do the scene my way. Mm. Come on, Sir Lawrence. God bless your veins and your arteries, Colonel. Sir Lawrence, you don't know shit. Did he buy it? Did he buy it? Hell, I bought it. Billy, mm. I think there's something wrong with us. Uh, Spare cigarette. It's cool. Listen, don't have a hammer. Some people get so fucking excited. Give the man a value. Groper, get off the line. The hammer feeling's correct. Hello, Colonel Kane here. Get me Camp Pendleton. Yes, quartermaster's office. Thank you. We'll need some supplies. What for? We're going to indulge the men. Just like the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Would you care to venture a comment on either the frogman suit or the German Gestapo uniforms? You pick the uniforms. Sure, go ahead. Oh, I see. They want to play Great Escape. Okay, once more, a lot to unpack the whole entire thing. Yeah. All right, so as I had mentioned before we went into this clip, at first, Groper's talking about how they need some kind of punishment restrictions because of what has happened to him, which Kane agrees, and he's about to do something about that. But later that night, Jason Miller's character of Reno comes in and does this whole entire speech about the sanity versus insanity and how if you are starting to feel on the cusp of feeling that you are starting to lose it or if you do sense that your grasp on reality is flipping by acting further insane than what you are you can actually insulate yourself from what is causing you to feel insane yes which you would have to be self-aware about the mental illness that you have in order to pull this off but that entire diatribe and that entire speech that goes off and talks about how hamlet is both insane and sane at the same time but the only reason that he is both is because he has to act crazy to keep himself sane Mm -hmm. because everything around him is falling apart 
and he just has to essentially go with it and just kind of go overboard with that sense as well. Yeah. And it's a way to sort of insulate himself. The first time I watched this film, this speech had me decide how I was going to live the rest of my life. Really? I was like, that's perfect. Yeah, that is nice because like last week, uh, Animal House had me how I was going to spend my life, that drunk and stupid. Whereas for myself, whenever I feel like things are starting to get out of my control and I myself am out of control, yes, I just indulge my madness as much as possible. You just turn into the skid there, don't you? Basically. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just going along with it's whatever a, crazy shit is it's happening. It's pretty much a great piece of advice and I actually live by that motto too. When it seems like you're out of control, just turn lean into it turn into it and see where it goes man but there's no use fighting it but for me i'm literally overcorrecting it because i'm gonna make that car fucking spin and see where it goes <laughs> when i start feeling like I'm, true. I'm losing my grip on myself i take it a lot further than i should yeah, it's, it's, that's true and also it's like when i really feel like i'm out of control that's when i turn into it when you feel just like a monicum of out of control which if you just pump the brakes a little bit you'd be fine you actually just speed up so you get more out of control quicker basically yeah. The brakes go out on me and I say, fuck it, I'm doing 90. No, no, no. Here for you. Your brakes don't even go out on you. And you, you just hear a high pitched squeal and you go, well, might as well do 90 and not brake anymore. Fuck that. <laughs> That's oncoming traffic. That's, I'm going to smash it. <laughs> Turning into oncoming traffic can be counterproductive. After the clip, we see the men are digging and you do kind of hear it at the very end of the clip. They're playing Great Escape. Now, this film makes a reference to so many classic films that I'm not going to go into and explaining why watch the fucking great escape if you need to know more or at least read up on it very quickly tunneling and other forms of trying to make your quote-unquote great escape is the plot line of a film called the great escape i thought you just said you were going to go into it that's all i'm going to tell him. <laughs> oh okay as cutshaw is leading the men of course he is because he's fucking cutshaw he's explaining how the first two tunnels that are currently being dug are actually decoys i don't know how that works but i think he just wants to direct more of the grounds well just you know hey you have one tunnel go one you get three tunnels. They all go different directions. Two are decoys. We see dogs waiting to be cast for Reno, which is one of my favorite parts of this film. Jason Miller plays it up (laughs) so well. They brought up more dogs. The artist character who has been doing the paintings is actually being raised on a window cleaner style scaffolding that'll take him to the ceiling that he can paint the ceiling of the castle. Gruber looks at this and is shocked and growing increasingly disturbed by this trend to indulge the men and allow them to find their sanity by indulging their mental delusions. <laughs> this is the kind of mental health care I can get behind. Yeah, right. Reno is very upset with all of the dogs he is being sent. Nemec has his own Superman suit now, complete with an N for his name of Nemec. <laughs> which, if you think about it, makes sense. That is supposed to be the symbol for the House of L. Yeah. So N would be the symbol for the House of Nemec. Yeah. And and he thinks he should be in Caesar. Yes. Which yeah. I'm about to explain. Yeah. Th- I mean, that's fucking hilarious. I just love the fact that he has N on his chest for his name which yeah. is, if you know Superman lore, is a perfect reason for that to be there. Yes. It's so cool that they did that. It is. Now, he is trying to convince Reno, as Matt had mentioned, that there is a place for Superman in Julius Caesar. Essentially, when the conspirators are there to kill Julius Caesar, he wants Superman to swoop down and save him by going leaps and bounds over top of buildings out yep. of the way and away from harm. And I love how he's like, Jesus, Nemec, are you insane? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because would Superman really save Julius Caesar? <laughs> it's Superman, man. Of course 
course he will. Right. He might take him from power while saving him, but he's still going to save him. He doesn't want anybody to get murdered. That's true. He just wants them to, you know, face true justice and the American way and all that other stuff that, you know, an yeah. alien would believe in. Were he to land well, in Kansas. Yeah, if he were to land in Kansas, you would be raised to believe in truth, justice, and the American way. But only if you were raised by Kevin Costner. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, yeah. wait, no. Well, because now he does voices of dogs, so. All right, so the artist character wants to know who put flies in his paint can. He's actually relatively upset about that. Yeah. Brennan somehow now has an actual flying pack that is working, and you see Robert Loja flying on the horizontal with this goddamn thing. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's not how that backpack works, because you've seen that in, like, the jetpack things that they use it in, like, the... Yeah. I've seen it in this, like, reruns of the $6 million man, where it just lifts him up over a wall and then drops yeah. him off. Then you j- drop down, yeah. Yeah, and they're that's it. The, they're not the most, uh, you know... Yeah. He's clearly flying on a wire, but it doesn't matter, because as much as this film is going off the wall, of course the military is going to spend that so he can have a flying belt. And he seems very happy with it. I mean, they're paying for the destruction of the castle for them to play Great Escape. Yes. So I'm pretty sure all the other stuff is just... Um, it's gravy at this point. It's the reason why toilet seats for Congress cost millions of dollars. Yeah, right. So Brennish has that flying pack. He zooms past during the conversation, crashes, and then Reno looks at Numick and tells him that his brother must have the falling sickness. Uh-oh. The falling sickness. No. he crashed, yeah. Yeah. Now, Frome, who has his own crew of nurses and a gurney, is looking to take care of Brennan after the crash. They all go running off. But as they go to scoop him up and start taking care of him, they ask if he has insurance first. <laughs> oh, how that rings so much more true this day and age. Right. Bell wants to know if all the extra folks are staying for dinner. He asks this of Kane. He checks on Brennan and Frome. One of his actors has bitten Reno when he told her she was a lousy actress. I get the feeling he was trying to Harvey Weinstein that dog. Yeah, probably. Or something. I, that I'm, dog was like, fuck you. And he's like, yeah. fine. But it bit his hand because he told her she was a lousy actress. That makes me <laughs> laugh. He then tells tells the dogs they can all be replaced after speculating that maybe he could adapt the plays for penguins instead. Yeah, exactly. Which I wish they had the fucking budget for that. I would totally love to see him try to put on Shakespeare. Smile and wave, boys. It would be a classy production because everybody would be wearing a tux. That's right. Penguins are just a classy bunch of guys and gals. The frog suit is apparently for Fairbanks, who is super stoked that the atoms in water have much better manners than in a wall because they allow him to pass through them no problem yeah <laughs> i love the way that actor delivers yeah. that line it's so funny <laughs> i mean it makes sense to him yeah in a, in a crazy hey, kind of twisted logic makes it makes sense, sense to me too <laughs> well that's the thing that's great about this is their twisted insane logic actually makes sense on a fundamental level yeah when you look at it from their perspective of course kane checks on cutshaw who leads the men in a cheer to salute the madness that kane is allowing them to indulge and this praise seems to shut kane down as he waves with the dead behind the eyes stare. Did you notice that? Oh, yeah. Where he's just like, kind of like, what have I done? But also, Uh like, he doesn't know how to deal with any of this. Yeah. So it's just, he shuts down once again. It's like if he feels anything outside of just got a cure, got a cure, he shuts down. Yep. Cut from this to another rainstorm. It is the Pacific Northwest, after all. It is, man. That shit's gonna rain. At night, as the Colonel What Are You Holding voice returns once again, we then see Kane in the Gestapo uniform facility 
facilitating the great escape indulgence play for the men, he appears to have passed out what I'm assuming is from exhaustion because he's at his desk face down in some files and notes. As we are hearing what he is dreaming, we see someone in a jungle who appears to be a fellow soldier. And as the soldier says, Jesus, it's a Kane's door swings wide open loudly, awakening him. And that leads to our next clip. Colonel, why do I have to wear this? What? I said, why do I have to wear this? It's psychodrama, Major. Role play. Standard tool in therapy. The inmates are playing the role of allied prisoners of war, attempting to tunnel their way to freedom. We are their captors. Bullshit! We're their prisoners! A bunch of yellow belly goof-offs out there having a ball. Why should I help their fun? I'm not a psychiatrist! It's a goddamn chicken shit crazy idea! Jesus. Jesus Christ, man. Why don't you love somebody just a little? Why don't you help somebody? Help them. Help, for the love of Christ! You green-soaked, caterpillar-torturing bastard! You're gonna wear that uniform? Sleep in it? Bathe in it? Try to take it off and you'll die in it! Is that clear? I claim this swamp for Poland. Major Groper, please get out of here. Immediate. And keep that uniform clean. The man has a flag fetish. Now then, Major Strasser, tomorrow night we're switching roles. You will be the inmates and we'll be the guards. Here, study your part for tomorrow night's interrogation. Notice, incidentally, that you crack on page three. Yes. Who are you? Who are you? You're too human to be human. I don't know. Maybe you're P.T. Barnum. P.T. Barnum slaughtered lambs. He put up a cage at side shows, and he stuck in a panther and a lamb together, and there was never any trouble. Buddy, the public just went lollipops. Look, a panther and a lamb, and they don't even argue. They don't even discuss. But, huh? What the public never knew was that it was never the same lamb. That fucking panther ate a lamb every single day at intermission for 300 days, and then they shot him for asking for mint sauce. Animals are innocent. Why should they suffer? Why should children suffer? Will you tell me that? Why should any baby have to suffer and die? Why should men? Oh, come on now. Don't try that one on me. You've got answers for it. Like pain makes people noble. And how could man be more than a talking tennis playing panda bear if it weren't at least for the possibility of suffering? But what about animals, Hud? Does pain make turkeys noble? Why is all of creation based on dog-eat-dog? And the little fish are eaten by the big fish. Animals screaming in pain. All of creation an open wound. A fucking slaughterhouse. We've talked about that. Not enough! We said original sin might be the cause. Then why doesn't Foot just come down and tell us? Is Foot running short of tablets of stone? My Uncle Eddie owns a quarry. I'll get him for you. You're asking for miracles. I'm asking Foot to either shit or get off the pot. Diuretic strange gods have been waiting in line. Maybe God can't interfere in our affairs. So I noticed. Maybe he can, because to do so would spoil his plan for the future. Some evolution of man and the world so unthinkably beautiful that it's worth all the pain of every suffering thing that ever lived. I say it's spinach and to hell with it. You're convinced that God is dead because there's evil in the world. Correct. Then why don't you think he's alive because of the good in the world. What goodness? Everywhere. In man. You're committable. If we're nothing but atoms, molecular structures no different in kind from this desk or that pen, then we ought to always be rushing irresistibly, blindly toward serving our own selfish ends. So how is it that there is love in this world? I mean love as a god might love. And a man will give his life for another. Never happened. Of course it happened. Give me one example. It happens all the time. Name one example. A soldier throws himself on top of a live grenade 
made to prevent the other men in his squad from being hit. That's reflex action. A shipwrecked survivor in the middle of an ocean finds out that he has typhoid and deliberately goes over the side of the lifeboat to keep the others in the boat from contracting the disease. Now, what do you call that? Reflex action? No, I call that suicide. Suicide and giving up your life are not the same. You're so dumb, you're adorable. The essence of suicide is despair. The essence of suicide is you don't collect the insurance. Listen, who doesn't know but what all these examples we keep on hearing about aren't bullshit? I don't have some basically bullshit, selfish explanation. I don't. Now give me one example, just one, that you know of pers- personally, just one. Not as much. Tomorrow, son, take me to mass. Would foot give a shit about what I'm wearing? Terra Toxaniovus, Bonne Voluntatis, Madame must stay, Benedictus must stay, Adorama must stay, Glory for Kama stay, Gratius. Is that Edgar Casey? If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life, life in all its fullness. As the Father knows me, and I know the Father, in the same way I know my sheep, and they know me, and I am willing to die for them. I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd gives his life for his sheep. Infinite goodness means creating a being that you know in advance is going to complain. <laughs> All right, there's a lot to unpack on that clip as well. Yes. The dialogue that happens between Cutshaw and Kane is probably my favorite moment in the film altogether, 100%. This particular sequence I found particularly moving. Cutshaw was able to express a lot of what I myself have struggled with over time whenever someone is trying to be like, well, why can't you believe in God? It's like, look at this creation. Look at the way that it is. Are you telling me that everything thing that is suffering is all a part of this plan because if that's the case and your god is real then fuck your god for that yeah like cutshaw says it so much more eloquently because it is written in the perspective of a man who lost his faith or probably is in the grips of fear of the fact that he is an atheist trying to explain or come to terms with the things that terrify him about being a living sentient being on this planet so it's written in such a way as to show that all atheists are essentially just waiting for that moment that God will find them. I get that. But the arguments that Cutshaw has are still very valid and still very much to the point. And as far as I'm concerned, Kane has nothing to offer. He gives nothing but basic descriptions of things that people would do to better someone else. But he doesn't have any examples personally of just another human being laying down on the wire, which you think that someone like Kane would have yeah. to save other people. Like the actual just giving up your life or doing something in order to protect or take care of your fellow human beings. And I love that Kane's saying, well, how can we all just be atoms rushing off to our own selfish ends? How can love exist like in this world? And I mean, love as a God would love where a man will do that or, you know, a human being will give up their life for another human being, even someone they don't even know just because it's the right thing to do. And every single explanation that Catchall gives for it, he's like, no, that's reflex action. Jumping on the grenade, that's reflex action. That's horse shit. That's not him sacrificing himself to save his friends. That's just a reflex. That's what he was trained to do. The man going overboard for typhoid is just suicide because it's easier. And I love, he's like, the essence of suicide is despair, not giving up your life. It's not the same thing, which is a setup for something that happens later on. Yes. And Cutshaw's explanation back to that is something that I have probably said to someone in my life whenever they tried to argue (laughs) with me about something like that. I feel like I may have said that the essence of suicide is you don't collect the insurance. Yeah, Well, that could be it too. Yeah. 
Cutshaw is, yes, 100% being harsh about a lot of things, but he is in serious emotional turmoil. And in the sequence of this clip, he is reaching out to essentially the only person that he's ever come to trust, that even though Kane is essentially just trying to win him over to believe in God and that life will be so much easier for Cutshaw if he just gives up the control of his own life and gives up all of those fears and then those anxieties and shoulders it onto the burden of something that he can never prove that will actually exist and let everything else be taken care of by this thing that he can't know is there, that everything in retrospect will seem like it worked out in the end because that's how the syncopation of life works out. Just random synchronicity does not prove God. Yeah. So that's basically what he's trying to go for and he's trying to tell him that love will prove it and all of the things that he's trying to offer just don't get there for Cutshaw. Mm. And yet Cutshaw continues to trust him and continues to try to find that. They even go to church together. Yeah. And I truly believe that when Cutshaw stands up and says infinite goodness means creating a being you know in advance is going to complain, I think he gets the basic description of what it's like to be that. That's what a parent is. Yeah. You are creating a being that you know in advance will be pissed at you for doing it. Yep. (laughs) That's what being a parent is. I am living that life now, my friend. And as far as being a god is, you create an entire species. You create an entire planet filled with multiple species. When you know in advance, they're going to complain. Yes. That sums up creation on multiple levels so well and I love the way that he does it and everyone around him is super pissed off that how dare would he speak during this sermon yeah and I also want to point out I looked up photos of Edgar Casey uh-huh. and an older Edgar Casey does look back look a lot like that priest <laughs> I don't know who the fuck that is but I looked up photos just to make sure yeah all right so during the sermon Kane sees a young man of Asian descent I clipped out the noise for that but this triggers some kind of a memory in him having to do with Vietnam the boy is clearly not Vietnamese. No. But, but it's, it's enough, enough to trigger enough to his trigger it, mem- yeah. memories and things like that. Also, how the fuck do you find a Vietnamese boy in fucking Budapest? Very carefully. <laughs> it would be difficult. I think they did as good might, as they could. Might be on that black market the guy found so easily. Oh, I don't want to know about yeah, that. Yeah, I don't either. I don't want to know about how you're getting people on a black market. I don't even want to think about <laughs> nobody, that. Nobody wants to think about that, but that shit happens. That just went dark real fast. Real fast. Cutshaw is desperately seeking for something and upsets the entirety of the mass with the antics that we were describing and that you hear in the clip. And then after the clip, we see Reno attempting to train sheep to perform Hamlet. He gets them to get the B part. Yeah. Or not to be. Like, he can't get to. Yeah. They can't get B they can, or not to be. They can be. Yeah. Well, it sounds more like bad. That's it. Like yeah. To bad or not, not to, to bad. Yeah. That is not. <laughs> So fucking stupid. <laughs> Although I'm proud of us. This took us this long to get to stupid. Yeah, get to, to get to stupid jokes. Hey, we're dealing with a, a, a masterpiece Serious over here. stuff, yeah. Last week we were stupid from beginning to end, but that's because that movie was awesome. So, <laughs> And again, he appears to be mostly unsuccessful as we have demonstrated by our stupidity. Yes. Kane and Cutshaw returns to the castle and Cutshaw thanks Kane for taking him to mass. I think he even says, thanks, I dig it. He goes running off doing his sort of Harpo Marx walk. Then he returns returns and asks Kane to give him a sign of life after death. He essentially asks Kane, if you die first, will you give me a sign that there's life after death? And Kane's like, yeah, I'll try. He says, I will try. I will do my best is exactly what he yeah. says. To which Kane actually is very happy when he acquiesces to this request saying that he will try. Cutshaw tells him he is terrific. Fell approaches Kane and offers to go with him to the beach to a diner there, which serves excellent Eggs Benedict. It turns out that this is Kane's favorite food. 
food. Kane refuses to go with him, basically stating that he's too tired, and let's face it, taking Cutshaw to church would be very tiring. I'd be, I'd be way tired. Feld jokes that he was hoping that Kane would come along so that he would pick up the check. Yes. And then he gets extremely angry, overly so, when he is almost hit by paint from the artist. But when you understand where Fell is coming from, it makes sense that this is the thing that triggers him from all the anxiety he's been holding back and fear and pain and sadness. Yes. It's not about the paint can. No. And it's not about the paper clips in that sense. No, no, it's this poor guy. I did grab a little mini clip of him oh. freaking out about the paint. Who in the fuck took my paper clips? You hear it right there. I mean, that's just, that's, it's, that, it's not about the pain. That stabs you right in the heart, man, when you listen to that. Right Although, in the heart. In the actual movie, it has actually acted really well and you can tell that's yeah, yeah. exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah. Kane walks further into the castle and meets with Brennan, who is in a classic space suit, because again, he's convinced he's on Venus. He is asking if there is any news from Earth, but the intercom hooked up to his suit is so fucking loud it causes a feedback and hurts everybody's ears. He says sorry and he turns it down, then asks once again if there's any news from earth kane ever trying to solve the problem and fix these men states that his planet has demanded his return brendan immediately replies with fuck that (laughs) then asks if there are any packages from earth he states that his mother used to send him monthly cheesecakes packed in popcorn to keep them moist when he was on mars he also states that mars is drier than an armpit in hell and that any talk about mars being moist is horseshit yes or something along those lines hey they found water now on Mars, so... Kane says, yes, I know. Just basically yeah. acquiescing and playing kiss-ass with the loonies, as uh, Cutshaw said earlier. Then Brendan announces that he is sealing off his mind and pushes his spacesuit up over his head so that he cannot see anything and proceeds to walk through every easel and canvas around him. Yes. So fucking funny. I love it's that. It's awesome. Brome stops his medical crew from intervening in Brendan's bumbling because he knows he's not hurt, but then the man who's been running around on the motorcycle through this entire sequence and who is playing Great Escape on the motorcycle catches their attention when he zooms past them and we hear him crash. Krebs, who is Tom motherfucking Atkins, reports to Kane telling him that there is a new patient waiting in his office as Krebs felt it would be best for Kane to explain the situation here in this ward before mixing him in with all of the others, which is probably a wise decision. Probably. He states the man appears to only have combat fatigue, which I believe is the term that they started using in the 60s for PTSD instead of shell shock. Yes. I believe. I could be wrong on that. I think you're right. And to any veterans or anyone who has PTSD, I apologize if I'm incorrect on that, and I would more than welcome to be corrected on that, but given what the soldier looks like when they show him and they describe it as combat fatigue, that looks very much like PTSD to me. Yeah. And I know PTSD PTSD comes in multiple forms, so it's a possibility. I'm just trying to do deductive reasoning for this. I think I've qualified that enough. I think so. I think you've, you've done a good enough job of covering all the bases and backing the truck up enough, so yeah. you're fine. And trying to make sure that my ass is properly covered. Beep, beep. Which is a much easier task to do now that I've lost weight. Yeah. <laughs> he says that the man may possibly be fine otherwise, but just needs to basically work through those issues, something along those lines. Kane thanks Krebs for his discretion in this matter, and as Kane starts to head upstairs to his quarters, he hears that new man's voice asking for a cigarette and a light. He asks what the getup is for, and it's clear that it is Ruber who is still wearing his uniform because he is yeah. terrified that Kane will murder him. 
yes. for taking it off. Justifiably so, we all heard it in the clip. Yeah. And when you see the bloodshot vessels in Kate, Stacey Keach's eyes while he's delivering that oh dialogue. Oh my God, it's intense. It's absolutely horrifying. Yeah. Reminds me that I should probably try to reach out to my father. <laughs> uh, you need to throw the ball around a little bit or you're right over there. I just need him to be okay with the fact that I'm an atheist and we'll start from there. Oh God, he's going to get another tattoo, everybody. So he asked Groper what's the get up. Was it for Halloween? Because Groper's still wearing his Gestapo uniform, although everybody else has stopped playing Great Escape. Yeah. Because again, Groper is very, very scared of Kane. Yes. Kane turns and we see it is the man from his repeat nightmare visions that we've seen who states Jesus Killer Kane as he looks right at whom we thought at this point was Hudson Kane. Yep. Upon seeing Kane standing there by him, this triggers a suppressed memory where we see that same man who is the person suffering from combat fatigue running through the jungle. He finds Kane and says that it's me, Gilman, so we now know his name. Yep. He comes upon Kane and then notices that Kane has killed what he refers to as a Charlie. Now, I don't find that that is a racist term because that was a blanket used for all yeah. of the Viet Cong. Mm-hmm. Yes. It was just basically just That's, a general yeah. term for an enemy. Charlie isn't the racist term. They used him plenty yes, over there. But so in this film, he only says Charlie. Yes. Says that you got a Charlie as in you got one of their soldiers. Yes. Kane states that he cut off his head with a wire and he kept on talking. So we know where this dialogue comes from. Gilman asks, Colonel, what are you holding? And we see in a wide shot of Kane, he is holding the dead child because it is very much a young boy. Yeah, it's a young man. He is holding the child's head, and this sends Gilman screaming Jesus as Kane also screams, and the way they pan up out of the rainstorm as this is happening in that scream, where you see the psychotic break that happens in Kane, wrecks me yeah. every fucking time. Oh, yeah. They cut from this to, in an assignment area on what I assume is the front, a glitch from the computer states that Colonel Kane is being sent to be in charge of a state-side asylum, and that he is in fact a psychiatrist. The guy states that that cannot be, it must be some type of a computer mistake, that there's no way that he could be that Kane, and then he states over and over again, there must be another Colonel Kane. Obviously, he only said that once, but Vincent, who is clearly Vincent Kane here in this, jumps on that as a way to escape what he feels and the things that have been happening to him on the battle at the front, being a guerrilla warfare guy. This repeats in his head over and over again as we see that this is where Vincent Kane assumes the identity of his brother Hudson Kane. Yes. This mental break results in Vincent assuming the full-on identity to head to the asylum in the States, getting out of the front and out of Vietnam altogether, and the pain of this realization sends a barrage of flashes through the film, which is basically Kane's mind trying to cope with what it is that he's seeing and feeling, as he collapses to the floor, also known as fainting. Yes. Cut from this to Cutshaw trashing Kane's office. That leads to our next clip. Tell me again about goodness in the world. You lying, bloody, butchering bastard. Don't touch me. Don't come near me. That's your brother up there. That's your bloody green-soaked brother. That's Kane. That's Killer Kane. He'll cut your fucking head off with a wire. I needed you. What happened? You fainted, don't you remember? What do you remember? I don't know. Nothing. I was walking to my room. Do you remember the new inmate? New inmate? You don't remember. What the hell are you talking about? Roper, who was that? It was a cut shot, sir. When Kane got the orders, he was commanding a special forces camp just south of DMZ. By the time he got to the States, we, we'd caught the mistake, but by then it was clear he, he meant to go through with it. We'd been watching him. We heard uh, we heard stories about his cracking. He seemed to be on the 
on the edge of a very serious breakdown, and then some computer dropped a stitch and gave him a halfway out, a way to find help without facing his illness, a way to hide from himself, but mostly, mostly as a way to wash away all the blood, to do penance for all that killing by curing. At first it was just a pretense, but on the way back from Vietnam, it developed into something more. His hatred of the cane who killed became denial, and also projection. Someone else must have done all that killing. Then after a time, that denial became so strong that it totally obliterated Cain's identity. He suppressed the Cain who was the killer and became the better self that's in all of us, completely, except when he dreamed. We were experimenting, you see. He was on the inside looking out, an inmate functioning as a psychiatrist and coming to bear on the problem like nothing we'd ever seen before. We hoped he'd come up with an answer or at least some new insight. And I think he did. I think the men have been responding to him. He suffered a setback today and a bad one. You see, his, his only hope of finding a cure for himself is, is to wipe away the guilt by a saving act, by curing the other inmates. At least see some improvement, but that takes time. Time and your help. Now, you've seen my orders, but I want Kane to play out the string. You understand that, Lieutenant Gilman? Yes. I'd like you to try to convince the other inmates that you were mistaken. That shouldn't be too hard to sell around here. Will you do that? Oh, yes, sir. No. Groper, Krebs, Christian, the others will back you up, so will I. Colonel, let me get something straight. You've been in charge here all the time. That's right. Kane is uh, Vincent Kane. I'm Hudson. I'm a psychiatrist. Vincent is my patient. You know, when we uh, when we were kids, I used to make him laugh all the time. I was I was the clown, you know. I've been trying to help him remember me, but he won't do it. He's my brother. Ed Flanders delivering these dialogue at the end where he starts to break up in front of those other men and the understanding that the other men actually have at this point as he's describing what was going on. And I realize that this explanation is very much like Psycho where they lay out everything about the psychology. Yeah. But I also feel that at this point in time, they needed to explain the various hallucination stuff in like the late 70s, early 80s. I think they needed to explain where the psychotic break was and essentially explain how he got to the States using these transfer papers but because they realized halfway through that he was actually losing it because of the people that were keeping track of him they decided to just basically transfer him there as an inmate Mm -hmm. but allow him to operate under the delusion yes and i love the idea of a mentally ill person who is able to empathize and know what's going on with other mentally ill folks and coming to bear on the problem like no sane person quote-unquote sane yeah has ever been able to do before well and now you know why he cried so much when he said his when uh when he said his brother was dead because, because now that means his brother is dead because yeah. he's acting like him yeah he is being yeah. Hudson because he he's hates himself Hudson. yeah so much as Vincent he yeah. no longer wants and to now live. Hudson has to live with the fact that it sounds like Vincent is dead there might not be any getting him back they talk about how Kane is they call him Killer Kane and he was nicknamed that he's a guerrilla warfare guy who apparently killed thirty people with his bare hands yeah guerrilla warfare is no shit to shake a stick at. No. And guerrilla warfare in Vietnam, quadruply so. My dad had to go through all that shit. Things got really nasty in Vietnam. Yeah, my... Shit got evil my on, dad's, in Vietnam. Are you kidding? My dad's in his 70s and he's still dealing with that shit. Yeah, and he still won't talk about it either. Yeah, yeah. No, he'll talk about some things, but I mean, yeah. I've heard maybe four stories about Vietnam and he was there for two plus years. Yeah. I mean, you know, right. what, are you, what am I not hearing? You know. Exactly. Ugh. Now, someone like Killer Kane 
Crane, who is in fact a colonel and ran an entire special forces camp. Yeah. That they basically, their whole job was to go out and just do this guerrilla warfare where they went through the jungle and just murdered people. Yes. And he apparently specialized in using a wire to behead people. Yep. And then that he would garrote them to death or what have you. Now he's got the weight of 30 kills on him, but I would submit to you that he was starting to suffer from the endless battle. He's starting to get the combat fatigue, PTSD, whatever you want to refer to it as, depending upon the time frame and how they look at it. Mm-hmm. But I would say that he stumbled on the boy in the jungle where the boy was armed and ready to go. And it was reflex action. He saw the weapon. He saw that he was dressed as one of the Viet Cong. And just before even thinking about it, sawed off his head with the wire. And then apparently he kept talking to him. And I believe that once he realized and came to terms with the fact that it was a boy that he killed in that manner, yeah. the guilt of that, because he's holding the head when he's when he's clearly mm-hmm. broken. Yes. And I feel that that was essentially the final straw that broke his back. Yes. And I believe that of all the other guilt, he was able to justify because it was in battle and he it's... knows that's his enemy. But this was a child and he can't get over the fact that he was forced to do that, which is, again, something the Viet Cong did where they used women and children as basically like human bombs yeah. that would just go up and pull a grenade on you and they would suicide bomb the fuck out of these soldiers. You never knew who you could trust. They gave the the they gave farmers uh, service to air rockets and they would just hide them in their little carts and while they were like if they were plowing and shit like that and helicopters were getting land to stage they just take out their rocket and shoot one and fire down a, a helicopter. Yeah. But that's I mean that's how fucked yeah. you were down there. I mean they yeah. just and the farmers had no idea what this war was about. Most of them didn't. They just were told by somebody in the military you see a helicopter landing blow it up. Okay. All right. And the amount of friendly fire on both sides was yes. ridiculous. Ridiculous. Yeah. 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 So that brief history of the Vietnam War should give you a perspective a little bit and it is extremely brief. This is the mostly abridged version. It is such a it was such a brutal conflict. If no reason to be uh, there at all on top of that. The the 80s really delved into movies and stuff, really delved into Vietnam because that's when a lot of them were coming back. I mean because like yeah. a lot of people now who had been a part of it were back and they were able to tell these stories to because these Because most filmmakers. of them didn't get to come back. Yes. If they got to come back alive, they didn't really come back until the 80s. Yes. That's and, how long it took. Yeah. And then all these filmmakers are starting to get these stories, and that's why you got Apocalypse Now, Platoon, all that. But really, Vietnam's been lost in the background again, because then in the 90s and the 2000s, really, movies and mo- mostly about World War II have really begun you know, and still are kind of the more prevalent. But yeah, if if you haven't really dug into a history book, Vietnam was was a, 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 a damned horrifying conflict for the United States. Now, at the very end of the clip, it is totally revealed that Colonel Fell is actually the real Hudson Kane. Now, he tries to formulate a plan to put the genie back in the bottle using Gilman as a way to say that maybe he would be mistaken. The easiest way to say that is, Jesus, he looks to me just like his brother. Yeah. That's all we would have to do. Yep. I worked with his brother. I mm-hmm. I had no idea that he passed. I thought that was him. Yeah. You know, they could have possibly done that and it shouldn't have been too hard to sell to everybody but Cutshaw. Well, they pretty much said said, you know, just tell the guys, you know, what you saw and he's like, "Yeah, I can do that." You know, I can say I was mistaken. With that help from Gilman, they think they could possibly put the genie back in the bottle, but as they're discussing that, we hear a car squealing off and a bunch of breaking sounds and noises as it does so, and it turns out that it is Cutshaw who stole that car and he is headed off on his own self-destructive path. They cut from this to a wild biker night at a local bar. I'm hoping that's near the castle because he stole the car. Hopefully he didn't go too far. Yeah, right. I'm assuming he found the first bar near him. 
Yeah, I think so. That's what you usually do when you're going on a self-destructive binge. That's what I always do. That's what I said. That's usually what you do. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Lord knows I've had to scrape you off several of those floors. <laughs> yes, you have. In one ceiling. Yeah, we're not going to talk about that. That was nasty. <laughs> How they got you to stick up there with all that honey, I don't know. Yeah, I do. <laughs> it was my idea. <laughs> my plans. Of course it was. So we see that the victim who was tied up earlier in the kidnapping from these same bikers, because you will recognize a lot of their faces. Yes. And particularly the pig glasses that the one really tall guy's wearing. Uh-huh. He must have some form of Stockholm syndrome because he is now hitting joints with these guys wearing beads and apparently he's a member of their club and he's all okay partying with his kidnappers now. Hey, well, that's nice for him. It's a wild time as this joint as they are openly smoking joints in the bar in front of everybody while dancing to really bad disco music. They start throwing empty mugs at the wall because it's fun to break glass. Some of the ladies are even dancing on tabletops, which is kind of a thank you movie because those butt cheeks are popping out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I believe at the time might have been Stacy Keach's wife, so I apologize, Mr. Keach, for that phrasing about your wife if she was possibly the one doing that. That's still a thank you movie. Possibly. Now, William Peter Blatty's wife is also in this film. Oh, yeah? In this bar sequence. I believe she is the quote-unquote pregnant waitress. Ah, I gotcha. But they don't go into that as much in the film as they do in the book. But like you notice from her apron, she has a little bit of a bump. Yeah. But they don't go overboard to explain it. Uh So I'm just saying. So Cutshaw is in the middle of all of this insanity, and he's just kind of sitting there with several shots lined up in front of him. It looks about five. Cutshaw stops the waitress and asks for a runway for the table dancing biker lady. (laughs) As you would. As you would. And then for another scotch. She then states, sir, you have five in front of you, which he does. And as she walks away, he sadly stares at all of the scotches and says he wanted six. Mm-hmm. Makes sense to me. Oh, yeah. Two of the bikers from across the bar recognize that it is Cutshaw and argue over it and even make a bet over it to make sure it is who they say it is. So it's Stanley and Richard. Yes. Richard is the guy wearing the one of fuck shirt, who I believe is Richard Lynch's the actor's name. And his face has obviously very seriously been burnt. Yes. Apparently, he lit himself on fire as protest over the Vietnam War, but unlike the Buddhist monks, survived. Oof. I don't know if And then he became a that guy in a lot of 80s movies. Right. Now, I don't know for sure if it was over the Vietnam War, but he did, in fact, light himself in protest over something. That's fucked up, man. But he survived. Jesus. I know, but that's just... That's a tough bastard. Yeah. And oh, by the way, Richard Lynch was the basic design influence for Blade from the Puppet Master movies. Oh, really? The shape of his face, yes. Nice. Which we see in the third Puppet Master movie where they hire him to stand around in the exact same outfit as Blade. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There you go. Yeah, that's right. So the bet they end up making is a beer and a shot in the mouth, which is way more innocent than I thought it was when I first watched this film. Are we sure that is it? Yes. Yeah, right. (laughs) There's a discussion later on whenever they're interrogating Cutshaw. All right. The shot in the mouth is a punch in the mouth. Oh, okay. But given Stanley's proclivities for sadistic rapiness, yeah. I wouldn't put it past him. Yeah, exactly. Nor Richard Lynch's character's very serious rapiness later on in the uh-huh. film. Yeah. But in this case, I believe it's a punch in the mouth. Yes. Which I can see where that would be a bet that two friends who are into beating each other would be okay to make. 
Yeah, right. I mean, I'm sure they're more upset about having to buy another person a beer. Yeah, I think that's what they're more upset about. <laughs> so one of the ladies states she thinks that Cutshaw is quite cute, who is also the one I believe that was table dancing and who I also believe may have been Stacey Keach's wife at the time. This upsets the big ass biker with the pig glasses on Stanley, who responds that he told her not to smoke and then grabs the cigarette out of her mouth and snuffs it out on the bar, which I thought it was the bar, but it turns out there was an ashtray there. So he's at least yeah. somewhat polite. Yeah, right. But I wouldn't put it past Stanley to just snuff it out on the bar or on the ground. And when he does it, it's in a very serious, jealous rage, almost like he's upset that someone else would be more pretty than him. Yes. The pair sit down to confront Cutshaw, who just wants to keep drinking. But Stanley, being an asshole, keeps interfering with him being able to do so. At one point, I think he grabs it and does the shot for him. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Cutshaw keeps giving them shit and talking shit to them as they try to talk to him because it's Cutshaw and he refuses to bow to anyone. Oof. They pull out his dog tags after Stanley slaps the living shit out of him and it proves that he really is Cutshaw because I've got his dog tags, Richard. He's the freaky chicken mother wigged out astronaut. <laughs> they decide that since he is famous for being an astronaut who was too terrified to go to space that this is a reason to take his severely drunken self and introduce him and humiliate him with the honorary club membership which is essentially just an excuse to terrorize and belittle a human being for however long they see fit till they get bored with it. Yeah. Cutshaw says fuck you when they offer to let him join the club as an honorary member. When asked if he would join, Stanley beats on him some more, and then when he stops, Cutshaw then says, okay, don't fuck you. <laughs> Stanley then ties him up with the chains he had dangling around his neck and declares it is what he learned in the Boy Scouts. And I just gotta say that if the Boy Scouts taught him how to properly tie a knot with a chain, yeah. he went to a much more liberal and thorough was, group of scouts uh, than I did. That was a way more hardcore Boy Scouts than what we were a part of. Yeah, I've never learned how to tie a knot in a chain in the Boy Scouts. Yeah, no. I had to learn that from Madam Nevermind. Oh, yeah, you usually pay double for that kind of action. Yes, I have. Okay. And if they were cruddy chains, you usually paid a little bit more. You know, you probably could have just looked that up on the internet. This was before the internet was a thing. Man. Oh, okay. That's why. Then that explains things. <laughs> yeah, I was 17. Yeah, no, the internet was around when you were 17. Not so as anyone would notice where I grew up. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so as he's tying him up, we see that the waitress who is clearly pregnant that was basically keeping an eye on Cutshaw is trying to call for help for Cutshaw. They toss Cutshaw around and then push him against a post. They say they are going to baptize the chicken mother, which Stanley uses quite a bit. And then after a launch code from 10 to humiliate him even more, yeah. Richard dumps a beer on his head, which Cutshaw being Cutshaw does his level best to catch as much of the beer in his mouth and drink it as he can. I was proud of him. <laughs> he did really good. Every alcoholic is proud of him for what he does Yes, when he catches all that beer in his mouth. That's right. Stanley asks if everything is a-okay, spaceman. Cutshaw replies heavily drunkenly, could you polish these chains because they're a little cruddy. <laughs> Stanley then removes his pig sunglasses to reveal he has what appears to me to be permanent eyeliner that is tattooed on his eyelids. Yeah, maybe. That's At least that's what I think they're hinting yeah. at, that like he's so into having the eyeliner that he wants to keep it that, forever. Or we just met our first emo character ever in the world. No, I do believe that they are trying to portray him as bisexual 
Ah. And rapey about it. Ah. Which is not, not far off. Not a good thing. No, it's not a good thing, and it's not far off from how he acted it, so. Yeah. He then deep open mouth kisses Cutshaw after revealing these eyeliner permanent tattoo things he has around his eyelids, then punches him in the stomach severely several times, making me want to throw up, but Cutshaw being a champion alcoholic does not throw up a drop. No, no, he's he's too tough. After beating him, he then says, Welcome to the club. Also, just think of it, if he was going to space this time, maybe he's gone before, and he's gone through all the tests from NASA, so Cutshaw, we know, has a fucking constitution like a maniac. Also, he's supposed to be a Marine, so yeah, to be a Marine, But to be, you know, all the tests, you have to go through to be an astronaut you have to have a constitution like a motherfucker so and he is looking to punish himself for trusting kane which is why he's yeah. here in the first place yeah killer kane gets the call from the bar which is clearly from the waitress and asks where it is they cut from this to the bikers toss cutshaw around in a circle as they do a launch countdown from 10 once again just to make him even more humiliated and degraded we then reach the blast off portion of it which they all scream out as they lift him as far in the air as they possibly can and then violently throw him to the ground allowing him to fall like a dead man to the floor which would really fucking hurt the way they drop him. I think they drop him on like his side and his elbow with a chain wrapped around yeah. him. Yeah. He's bruised as fuck from just that Oh, one. he's gonna, he's fucked up. Then Stanley screams again, go again. And as they do that, we see Killer Kane arriving at the bar at the next drop when they scream blast off and you see him fall behind all of the people standing around him. Yep. Kane tries to get Cutshaw out non-violently and is stopped by Stanley, who tells him that Cutshaw is his beach ball. They talk shit and degrade Kane, who is desperately trying to show Cutshaw that there is in fact goodness in this world by his own example here. Cutshaw states, here is your goodness in man, stating that the bikers are proof of what he has been saying all along, which prompts Stanley to strike him for talking. And he says, beach balls don't talk or something along those lines. Yeah. Kane again tries to be kind and asks, please let us go. He is going out of his way to not offend or to be insightful. He is or anything, not insightful, the, but to incite any kind of excuse for violence. He is trying to the, the, get out of there in the most peaceful way possible. He's like fucking Gandhi on crack with this shit yeah. right now. Then he is forced to say pretty please, which he does. This obviously upsets Stanley who stops him and then says that he needs to say Marines are all chicken trying to provoke violence from Kane. After Kane says that, he then makes him say that Marines all suck after demanding that just two more and then you can go. And that he says, if he says it, they'll let him go. Kane does say it, although it's very hard for him to spit it out. You can tell that he is visibly shaking in rage, but is doing his damnedest to contain it. They are all so disgusted that he would do that because they just want violence and that's all they want. And they want degradation. They don't care which they're going to get, but they prefer the violence and then the degradation because they're a gang and they can beat the shit out of people because they're used to ganging up. They then all turn on Kane and turn him into their beach ball. We know what Kane is capable of, but he endures this torment and humiliation to be that one shining example for Cutshaw. And you look, the more angry he gets, the more he looks at Cutshaw trying yep. to say, I'm doing this for you. Do you see the example I'm setting? Yeah. And he is so desperately looking to become this example that he is willing to endure this when 
and we know he could go through them like a hot knife through butter. Yes. Fuck that, like a soldering iron through butter. Uh huh. Fuck that, like a chainsaw through fucking butter. Fuck that, like the sun through butter. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Like, there you like go. you toss butter Sh- yeah, near the, the sun. sun, and it just goes away. As they toss Kane around, they chant USMC to once again humiliate him even more because that's the way that they're going to degrade him. And Richard takes Cutshaw to the side to only watch. They knock Kane to the ground. One of them puts out their leg and then the other one does like a shove tackle at him. Basically makes him land face and elbows first. Kane stares at Cutshaw and trying to communicate with them that once again he is doing all of this to show him there can be goodness in the world where even a man like him will endure this kind of torment just to try and save these people from themselves. Yes. Stanley dumps a beer on Kane, who we see enraged but keeps from becoming violent as he stares once again at Cutshaw, driving that point home even more. And at what point in your brain, Matt, are you going, just do it? Just, just do, fucking I was like, kill fucking them. snap, kill this entire fucking room. None of these people deserve to be alive. The second drop you see them do to Cutshaw, yeah. I'm already there. Yeah. I already want to see them all die. Oh, yeah. And the fact that he endures this over and over again and just keeps debasing himself for their entertainment mm-hmm. just to prove to Cutshaw there is goodness in this world destroys me. Yes. This part of the film wrecks me. Oh. That's why I'm trying to move through it quickly. Yes. <laughs> Stanley kicks him to the ground. I think he just kicks him right in the ass to knock him to the ground when he tries to get up and sort of crawl over to Cutshaw. The bartender tries to call for help, but one of the bikers rips the cord out of the wall. He states that he is on vacation, which I believe means he's on parole. Yes. Stanley does a split in front of Kane, driving home that bisexuality or gender non-binary thing that they're going for with him. Yep. And pours a beer out on the floor Floor, demanding that Kane lick it up in a very sexual and perverse manner. Mm-hmm. He says, if you do this, you will be allowed to leave. Just lick it up and you'll be allowed to leave. He's wholesome forcing Kane's head down into the puddle of beer on the dirty floor in a very suggestive, very rapey manner. Kane does what he is asked. And again, all of the bikers are disgusted with him for just allowing them to do this. Stanley is so disgusted, frustrated, and angry about this that he jumps up, headbutts the nearest support beam pole near him, then punches Kane in the back as hard as he can to knock him down to the ground. And did you notice this? He immediately pulls off the glove that touched Kane. Yes. He is so disgusted by what Kane just did. He doesn't yep. even want the glove on his hand that touched him. Yep. Richard tells Kane that was for disgracing his uniform. This final straw sends Cutshaw, where Matt and I have been the entire time, mm-hmm. into a frenzy screaming, you bastards. This prompts Richard to tell the other bikers to hold Cutshaw down, and he is trying to force his dick into Cutshaw's mouth, declaring that if Cutshaw does this, he will be famous. He's essentially trying to orally rape Cutshaw just for bragging rights of doing it. Yep. And he's got like three people holding him down and is putting a knife to Cutshaw's throat, and Cutshaw is still fighting him. Yep. This obvious sexual assault and the realization that there is no option to get out of this for Kane or Cutshaw triggers something in Kane and you see it his eyes go bloodshot again and Killer Kane is allowed to be back at the wheel instead of this Hudson Kane personality yes Killer Kane is unleashed upon the bikers and we see the look in his eyes as it changes to murder and the way they change the lighting on his face yeah you want to be like oh fuck finally yeah but part of you goes oh Oh, no you feel bad yeah you like you're you're relieved that he's gonna do it but at the same time you feel guilty for wanting him to cross over 
over and yeah. become Kane again or Killer Kane again. And the way the music switches over and Joe, yeah. oh, fuck, it's suspenseful as shit, man. It's awesome. He stands up in a rage, sort of halfway off the floor, as Stanley's basically really into watching Richard try to mouth rape Cutshaw. Yeah. Ask him how's it going and all of that kind of stuff. And he's holding the empty beer mug, which Kane reaches up and grabs a hold of it. Stanley doesn't even see him as a threat because he just assumes that he's some kind of a coward. And Kane smashes the mug into pieces, embedding the shards into Stanley's hand, and they show it to you. Oh, yeah. His hand is ruined. Oh, yeah. This sets off a blow to the neck on the back of Stanley's neck, which looks like he dro- after he drops to his knees from pain, he then does that blow, which it looks like it lays Stanley out with one strike. Oh, yeah. Knocked him the fuck out. Yeah, he's out fucking cold. Richard then stands up in shock, assuming that he still has his dick hanging out from trying to rape Cutshaw's face. He says, what the fuck? And then Kane just barrels over to him in like a very hunter, I'm going to murder you type of pose. (laughs) And it's horrifying. Richard sees this and he tries to react, but before Richard can actually react or even have time to, Kane has a hold of the arm with the knife, beats it off of the post, has him disarmed and very clearly broke that arm. Oh yeah. Hits him two or three times and beats him into a bloody pulp against that post before a single biker can even respond to this. Richard falls dead to the fucking floor. Yeah, Richard's dead. Five or six punches to various parts of his body and Richard's gone. Yep. He is no more. See you later, buddy. Kane then proceeds to manhandle and destroy every biker, male or female, that comes at him in any way, shape, or form. He punches one female so hard in the goddamn stomach, I think he killed her. No, he does. Yeah. But it's not a punch. We'll get to that. Oh, okay. Now, they're going through each and every one of them and they come charging up to him and then you actually see a shitload of other bikers run out of the bar in fear from him. Oh, yeah. The people who attack him, I believe, are the women of the men he's already knocked down. Oh, yeah. One of them, he just picks up and fucking tosses like the Undertaker. Yeah. Against the wall so hard, he cracks her skull, skull against the wall. Yeah, you the see wall. the blood of the wall and she's yeah. dead. Now, the woman that you said he punched her in the gut so hard, yeah. he actually hit her in the gut, used the force of that to jam his hand up underneath her ribcage and rip out her diaphragm so she died of asphyxiation. Jesus. If you look, he's yeah. grabbing a hold of her ribcage and he's grabbing onto her diaphragm. I believe he ripped her diaphragm oh. through the skin like he does yeah. that damage or just basically paralyzed the muscle or destroyed it. He did it. something. Because you yeah. hear her screaming as he yeah. does it and it cuts off all of a sudden where yeah. she has no breath anymore. Yeah. So he either instantly killed her by doing that or she just could not breathe and she will slowly asphyxiate. Well, whatever. They were all enjoying the torture of another man. <laughs> I know, but still, that is harrowing to know that Harrowing, he could do but, that. Yeah. That's so disturbing that he knows how to do that. Don't torture random dudes at a bar. I'm or, just a, or a or, duckling. Or, or yeah, yeah. Don't just don't don't go torturing random people at a bar. Unless you get their consent first. Yeah, like unless they're into that. Stanley stands up because he comes to all of a sudden and he is clutching a large stiletto in the only good hand he has left. Yeah. We hear what is known in the film fanatic world as the Wilhelm scream as he charges towards Killer Kane, but he is thrown through the window in a cut to the outside. The movie then shows us that every single person Kane had laid hands upon 
is in fact dead. Yes. Any contact he had with these people besides Kutchov, they came at him, they are dead. They are all dead. And to quote the Munchkin, not just merely dead, but really most sincerely dead. <laughs> really most sincerely dead. They cut from this to the cops are at the asylum and demanding that they give up Kane, even though he was provoked. And Hudson shouts, God damn it, he stays. Both Krebs and Groper step in front of the cops to stop them. In fact, Groper tells him, well, you got a problem then. Yeah. He says something like that to yeah. one of the cops, like, sorry, bub. And but Krebs, the strong, silent type, because he's Tom motherfucking Atkins. He's Tom motherfucking Atkins. He just stares at those motherfuckers. And he's they looking know at them, and he's like, you're lucky I don't have my mustache, <laughs> or you'd be dead already. <laughs> if I if I grew up my mustache, you already be dead. Did you notice the one cop that is talking to Hudson Kane at that is Opie's dad from Sons of Anarchy? I didn't notice that, no. Yeah. Nice. A very young, I can't remember his name, but he was one of the Redwood originals that was like on the oxygen all the time, the really old man. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Opie's fucking dad was in this movie. That's hilarious. They cut from this to our pent ultimate clip. Colonel, Colonel Kane, sir. Has anybody told Anne? Anne? My wife. No, it's all right. Where's Gilman? He's downstairs, sir. Is he all right? Yes, sir. He's fine, sir. Cut you off. Yes, sir. Why won't you go to the moon? Because I'm afraid. Afraid? That's right, sir. See the stars. So cold. So far. And so very lonely. Oh, so lonely. All that space. Just empty space. And so far from home. I've circled round and round this house. Orbit after orbit. Sometimes I'd wonder what it would be like never to stop and circle alone up there forever. And what if I got there, got to the moon, and couldn't get back? Sure, everyone dies, but I'm afraid to die alone, so far from home, and if there's no God, and that's really, really alone. Not much time. Time. No time. But I'll show you. I'll show you. God exists. That's right, sir. One example. And the others. Maybe help. Try. To cure. Try to cure them too. I don't know. No other way now. Time. No time. Had to try. Shock. Shock. Treatment. What was that, sir? I'm telling you, when he says it, I feel it. Just, I'm tired. Yeah. Tired. You know, when I watched it, I'm, I'm say I watched this one three times just wow. to get it in. Yeah. And every time when it, we're finally at the end of the movie now, because we are, we're close to the end. Yeah. This is the, this is okay. the closing. Yeah. yeah. And when he's just like, I'm tired. I'm tired. And I'm like, fuck, just like, I'm not tired leading up to that. But listening to him in this speech, I'm like, I'm fucking tired too, man. I hear you. Fucking tired. 
tired. But what he's talking about isn't being tired. No, I know. Needing to sleep. He is tired of, of existing. He's tired of fighting. He's tired of being this cursed thing that he feels like he is. No, I know. Yeah. Now, That's... when Cutshaw finally breaks down and admits what it is that he's terrified of, Cutshaw's speech cuts to the core of essentially the existential nightmare of all sentient beings that are aware of their own existence. Yeah. Those of us that are cursed with a finite amount of time to exist in a life that is slowly fading away as we rot, and we're none of us have asked for any of this life. So that statement, infinite goodness means creating a being you know in advance is going to complain. Not a single person alive today has asked to be brought into the world they exist in. No one wanted it. Yeah. They can justify the fact that they're here now by saying that they're glad they're alive, but none of you asked for what you have none of you you have to come to terms with that we're all terrified of also leaving this existence that none of us asked for yeah we're doubly terrified of being forced to go alone we're all in that yeah we all suffer from that in some way shape or form but here's the trick we all create philosophies faiths and various other methods of coming to terms with those fears and ways of comforting or putting the blame or the idea of whatever we've done that's wrong or taking giving the credit to everything we've done that's right to an other being that is the one who created us knowing in advance we are going to complain because yeah. it is infinitely good we put all these fears all of these anxieties everything that's wrong with us into whatever philosophy or whatever we can find that will comfort us we shape our world around us we bind ourselves to other beings that are suffering the exact same thing in this fate that we didn't ask for yeah but we're terrified to lose mm -hmm. just to try and escape that fucking fear that we live with every fucking day. Yeah. We start bowing to gods that we made up, pure and simple. We made them up. We created them. We defined them. We made them in books. We don't want to believe that that's the case because this is another effort of trying to make sense of this fucking miserable existence that we're yet still so terrified to get rid of. We just try to find a way to make any of this fear subside in any way, shape, or form. We find it in any way that we can. We all have our coping mechanisms, some of us less than others because they're really into the suffering. <laughs> I'm talking about me here. Yeah, I know. I'm fine with having to deal with it all on my own. I'm yeah. cool with that. I've come to terms with it all. And the way that I'm dealing with it is just acting as crazy as I feel my existence is. There you go. And when I say that, that none of us asked for this, yet all of us are terrified to lose it, I 100% believe that is a universal truth for all of humanity. And the way that we try to come to terms with the life that none of us asked for but are all terrified to lose is with faith and philosophy yeah that's just i feel that's a universal truth that's my belief when i really look at it objectively i'm not afraid of dying but i'm afraid of leaving my family you're still afraid of dying you just put it on what will your family do without you yeah you frame it in that way to deal with it but in your head somewhere in the back of your head you're terrified of not existing anymore but <sighs> the way that you look at it is if i don't exist who will take care of my family yeah so the core of the problem, Matt, is one day I will no longer exist. God, that makes me always wonder, is the only thing keeping me getting up in the morning is the fact that I, I feel this compulsory need to take care of my family? The fact that I get up every morning and do it, what I do is it, because Bev needs me to do it. Yeah. She's been struggling for wife, quite a while with her businesses uh -huh. trying to get them off the ground and get things to work out. And I basically the thing that is holding us together financially with my job. So that is literally the only reason I get up every morning. Otherwise, I would find a much easier gig to do. But 
I would still probably, I, I guess, in a sense, fear death because even if I won the lottery, because then I want to spend as much time as possible with my family. You know, my wife and my son, I, you know, I love them. So I, I of course, want to be there and, and, and be with them. But I don't know if it's the fact that I fear death itself or I fear what I'll miss. I can promise you that the fear that you have right now of who will take care of my family. Yeah. Once you know for sure that your family will be taken care of, uh-huh. it will be something else. Yeah. And it'll think? be a means of distracting yourself from the fact that you're afraid of I not think- I think it would instantly be something else. It would be then if if that part was all settled away, then it would be I would be fearful of missing out on spending time, missing out on the time. Your brain is doing the thing of what would this world that I've created do without me? Uh huh. But the pure fact of the matter is the important part of that equation is what is a world like without me? Do I matter enough to where if I don't exist anymore, would it even matter? Again, your brain is going to have a cognitive dissonance where you're like, no, I really do care about my family, but it's a way of you telling yourself that you're so important that if you don't exist, your family can't go on without you. Like, who, how, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's like, and it's, not even, it's not even that. It's like, it's a survival well, instinct that can help in. pay with the bills type thing. You know, that that's, I guess, what I think about to be less than stellar, of uh, maybe not the most romantic answer, maybe more practical. Because I try to think back when I was like 21, 22, did I fear death? And then, but that's kind of a, that's a, that's kind of a thing though too because at 21 22 you think you're invincible anyway so you don't fear death no one really does until you actually start to have things that you legitimately care for in life yeah until you bind yourself to another living being and have to accept the fact that at some point in time that may fail whether it's in a divorce for a loved one that you were married to or someone may be taken from you because of a horrible accident that sense of loss whatever that is going to be the thing that is taking something from you not having something in your life that you are so bound to emotionally, it still goes back to the none of us asked to be here. That would, but it, we're terrified to lose what it is that we have that, in this existence. That is such an interesting thing. I wonder what I would think if I never met my wife, and you know, so now I wouldn't have a kid. I wouldn't be married right now, and I'd be. That's a thought experiment it, we're going to have to do on another uh, show. We got to get this movie. We got, I know. Oh God, but that is such a good question, though. That you yeah. raised such a good thing. Yeah. Although now that this has been so heavy, can we please go back to movies where guys shoot? golf balls at horses and drag a guy behind him, please? Maybe. Okay. We gotta finish this yeah, one. Yeah, we gotta keep doing we're this. not done no. being desperately depressed yet. Yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 gotta go on. Okay, so as we hear at the end of the clip, Kane is exhausted, but he so desperately wants to restore Cutshaw's faith and belief in an effort to cure the other men, because he even says that, that maybe you can help them with shock treatment that I'm giving you. Maybe me being your one example will be what you need. And he's babbling this off, but he's saying it while he's basically exhausted and ready to pass out as far as we can tell and even Cutshaw takes it that way and just wants him to rest and is just grateful to have him there with him and he does say over and over again maybe you can show the other men or something along those lines and give them something that they can anchor themselves to because Cutshaw's their de facto leader if he gets better and shows them that there is goodness in this world maybe he can drag them away from their madness too and make them all better something along those lines because if the evil of the world is what drove them to this madness perhaps Cain's final act of goodness can drag them all out of that yeah. evil that's causing their madness. It's an interesting thought process that Kane has, although he's clearly insane. Yeah. <laughs> It's a very heavy thought process, and it still kind of blows my mind the way that he rationalizes it out, because I can't argue with his logic, even though it's clearly the logic of a madman. Yeah. 
At the end of the clip, it appears that Kane has fallen asleep. As he says how tired he is, Cutshaw leans down to discover Kane is actually wearing his St. Christopher medal. And then he caresses the back of his head in sort of a good night type of mode, almost like you would do whenever you're like booping somebody's head good night, like yeah. a child or something. It's a very tender and loving moment between the two men that you can see they're very dear friends and they care deeply for each other. And you see that reciprocated from Cutshaw at this point. Yeah. Then he walks out and the camera pans down and we see that Kane's hand drops down by his side and it is a knife that he is holding that drops out. Both the knife he's holding and his hand are covered in blood. They hold there long enough and you watch blood start to pull up underneath the chair and you realize the cushion he's been sitting on is absorbing it all but now it's soaking through that. Yep. Took me a while to realize that's what was happening but it's disturbing mm-hmm. when I see it. Cutshaw walks down the staircase that led up to Kane's room. He sits down midway on the staircase starts staring at his feet and the stairs where he finally notices that there is some blood on his shoes and he realizes instantly something terrible happens. You actually see him jump up and run off but they cut away from this before we know what's going on. I think he even says Jesus or oh my god or something along those lines. They cut from this to the cops where they're calling the main pig in charge and they're notifying them that he is on his way. Once again that's the actor who played Opie's dad there as a young man for everyone who's a Sons of Anarchy fan. They want to interview Cutshaw because they're looking like they're going to work out a way to keep Kane at the military asylum, but they need to talk to Cutshaw to find out more of what happened, and they basically acquiesce to this and say, yeah, you can interview Cutshaw, that's fine. They go to interview Cutshaw when all of the other men are awake and want to know what all this ruckus is, obviously, and then they ask where Cutshaw is. As they prepare to search for Cutshaw, Hudson even starts saying, okay, Krabs, you look in the dorms, and he's assigning various people of where to go to look for Cutshaw, yeah. and he begins to look up the staircase to check Kane's room, and as Hudson looks up the staircase, he sees Cutshaw carrying Kane down the stairs, and Kane is in a very obvious Christ-like pose. Yes. That is actually from a painting where the Virgin Mary is holding mm-hmm. Jesus. Yep. after being pulled down from the cross. It's a very famous one because yep. the proportions were purposely put in such a way as to make him look like he's still her baby because he is in her mind and that's what they're yes. representing with the artist. Very famous painting. I'm sure people have seen it. Oh, yeah. Um, but that's, I feel like, what they're recreating with Cutshaw carrying him because I don't feel like Cutshaw could carry no. Stacey Keish. Yeah, no, no, no. That's that, that, no. There's no way Scott Wilson's carrying, you know, that motherfucker right there. I believe the power of love. It's yeah. a curious thing. <laughs> Makes one man weep and another the man sing. Thing. Yeah. I don't want to deal with this right now. I, just, I don't either. Let's just get it over with then. Power love. As Cutshaw carries Kane down the stairs, Kane has obviously been long since dead in this Christ-like pose. The blanket is even soaked in blood. Hudson is visibly devastated, and I swear, man, Niagara falls. Ugh. Every time I see Ed Flanders' face whenever he breaks at yeah. seeing his brother like that, I fucking lose it now. Yeah. Hold it together. Let's get through this. <laughs> I know, because it's going to make you super uncomfortable I'm- to Super uncomfortable around people when they're showing emotion. It really bothers me. Cutshaw declares that Killer Kane has given up his life. He very specifically phrases it that way because that is something that he and Kane have been talking about for a while, that suicide and giving up your life are different things depending upon the reasons for doing it, which is calling back once again to those discussions. And that's exactly what Killer Kane had been hoping for, that he would look at it this way, that he's giving up his life to provide that one example Cutshaw so desperately needed. All right, everybody, have a good cry. No crying. Not right now, all right? I 
can't handle human emotion. I handle it for you. Won't be able to hear them. So everybody out uh, there. Oh yeah. Okay. Feel free. Just don't. Just don't Facetime me. They cut from this to a day trip of an obviously cured Cutshaw heading back to the now abandoned castle. He is now a major because his driver refers to him as such, and he's in full uniform. And I believe that's an upgrade from Captain. Correct? Oh yes. Yes. Yeah. So not only has he been back, but he is also moved up a rank. He's moved up one rank. At least. Major. No, one rank. Okay. I don't know. Captain to major. Okay. His car also has NASA plates and stickers, so he's very clearly back at being an astronaut again now that he's been cured. He enters the castle, walks into Kane's office, and reads a letter that Kane wrote to him. Now, there's a little bit of dialogue on both sides of that that I have included in our final clip. If you die first this life after death will you give me a sign a sign captain cutshaw i am taking my life in the hope that my death may provide a shock that has curative value in any case you now have your one example if ever i have injured you i am sorry i have been fond of you i know someday i will see you again vincent kane heard some stories about this place sir heard they had a doctor that was really a killer he was a lamb Okay. While driving away, Cutshaw finds a medal in the back of his car. We hear from the outside of the car, wait, what is this? What is this medal doing here? He notices that it's a St. Christopher's medal. He looks at the back of it. Turns out it must say, I am a Buddhist in case of accident, call a llama, because he gets a gigantic grin on his face. This is the proof that he requested from Kane, who has provided it here for him. Roll credits. All right, so we have gone just about three hours, just like we did on Animal House. But yeah, well, we I, we pretty much expected this. Yeah, and I was going to try and save all of the breakdown stuff than talking about it um, till now. Yeah. So we've got even longer to go, Matt. Yeah, I know. All right, the first thing that I need to say about this film, there are multiple versions that you can get out there on a hard copy. Yes. Whether it's DVD, Blu-ray, or DVD, Blu-ray combo packs. First of all, there is a Warner Brothers released DVD of the the film, which features the cross on the moon with a, the astronaut doing the revelry embrace, like show of hands, like towards the cross with the flag in the background on the moon. It says, William Peter Blatty's the ninth configuration. There is only one reason to buy this DVD, and that is that cover. Yes. The picture is terrible. The audio is okay, but all of the great special features that are available on it are elsewhere on other releases on disc. It's pretty much the astronaut going, what the fuck? To Jesus. Kind of. The next release that got out, were, which is actually the very first Blu-ray that you'll get your hands on was released by Westchester Films Incorporated and Hen's Tooth Video. This Blu-ray DVD combo set, the picture looks great, but the audio is terrible. You can hear it in all the clips because this is the one that I grabbed the portions from. It has serious audio issues where you can actually hear a harmonic distortion on this disc. Um, You can hear it in this clips if your ears are tuned to it. Yeah, I may be the only person that actually notices it, but I can tell the difference. And there's audio distortion on it. This features the cover photo has Stacy Keish on it. Looking at the screen, this is basically him looking up at uh, Roper with the hammer in his hand. Then it has the moon in the background, a silhouette of the castle, and then on either side is a drawing of Stacy Keish's face that is from the original movie poster with the ninth configuration on the title. It's a Blu-ray DVD combo pack. Now, for the serious collector who is tired of fucking around with all of these other editions that are deeply flawed, although get fundamentally better as we move along, if you have a region 
Legend B Blu-ray player. I'm looking at you folks in the UK. <laughs> or if you have the capability with a region-free Blu-ray, I highly recommend Second Sight's version of the Blu-ray. It has all of the same features that were available in all the previous releases, which there's a ton on the Hens Tooth video, but it also has some additional material added to it as well. Plus, it looks like they did a new transfer, so the picture is slightly better, although a little bit more dark in parts because they're going off of the original film elements, and in Hens Tooth video version, they did too much denoising and cleaning it up. But the good news is the audio on the Second Sight Blu-ray is back to where it should be. You don't have that sort of quadruply digitally sounding voice to it. You can hear it in the clips where it sounds like that munchkin-y kind of digital sound that we had when we were covering the Matei films and they yeah. were trying to pitch shift voices. It sounds like they tried to digitally pitch correct things or something with some of the dialogue or remove noise, but they used cheap filters and they didn't take the time to render it properly and it just sounds terrible. Mm-hmm. For the longest time, I took the video from the Hens Tooth Westchester Films Blu-ray, Yeah, ripped out the audio from the ninth configuration DVD that Warner Brothers put out and melded the two together and jammed them together in a file and then used that watching it on my Plex server because that was the way I could get the best of both. Yeah. Then I said, what the fuck? It's a copy of ninth configuration. I might as well hold in Caulfield the fuck out of this one. <laughs> Meaning I'm going to buy a catcher yeah. in the rye, like yeah. every copy of it. Yeah. yeah. I should have said, uh, what was that guy's name that shot Lennon? Oh, uh, uh, Hinkley? John Hinkley? No, that's who shot Reagan. Uh, He's the one that bought all of those then. Hinkley's, it, Hinkley's the one that bought all those then. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so I'm going to have to go Hinkley on ninth configuration and yeah. just buy every copy <laughs> I can see. But I pulled the trigger on uh, second side. I ordered it directly from England to yeah. come over here in the UK pre-ordered it to make sure I would get it on its release and I'm super glad that I did because this is the best version that I've been able to get both audio and video wise nice so that's the one that I recommend make sure you're region free first or you know know somebody that can hack it for you and maybe burn you a copy yeah the version that Matt and I both watch is what is Blatty's final version it's an 118 minute cut Blatty continued to fiddle with this film up until his death oh wow he removed sequences he added sequences there's so many multiple cuts mm-hmm. the version I have on on VHS is completely different than the version that's on DVD, which is also different. Yeah. Like the Warner Brothers DVD is also different than the version that's on the uh, Hen's Tooth Video one. And it's all like, but the Hen's Tooth Video one and the uh, Second Sight films are supposed to be Blatty's final approved version. Like, I'm sure you missed some sequences in there because it's supposed to be the biker who stabs him. Yes. And in the version that you're probably used to or that you've watched with me before, mm-hmm. he says that in the end, the biker's knife slipped in instead of him taking his own life. Oh, okay. There's also a sequence where where the character of Richard grabs a hold of the waitress and holds her against a pole and starts squeezing her and gets all rapey. Uh-huh. And she says, I'm pregnant, I'm pregnant. And then somebody does something to intervene. I think that's when they start picking on and beating on Cutshaw even more. Oh, okay. Because he tries to stop them from doing it. And yeah. then they go after him because she yells at them to try and stop. Yeah. For whatever reason, Blatty decided to remove that from his final version, but it's out there in other versions of the film. Hmm. So there's like a 99 minute cut. There's a 114 minute cut. And then this final version version is an 118 minute cut yeah there's like one of the versions out there also has whenever Cutshaw first uh, confronts Kane and then the painter guy runs in and paints him right after he says you show me a Catholic I'll show you a junkie uh-huh. that was just recently added in like as one of these final versions huh. up until like several versions ago they 
never did that. Oh, wow. So Blatty just never quite got it right. Yeah. This film was essentially behind the scenes Animal House. Uh huh. All of those actors were stuck in Budapest. Yeah. Getting very cheap drugs and alcohol, acting very badly. Yes. Jason Miller, the guy who plays Reno and is from The Exorcist, uh-huh. picked a bar fight with a Nigerian diplomat in their hotel. Well, that's awesome. Joe Spinell ended up cracking a whiskey bottle over said dignitary's skull during the fight. Jesus. They started throwing bottles at each other from across the room and trashed the entirety of this disco club at the top of their like Marriott or whatever it was yeah. in the Budapest that they were all staying in. Spinell and Jason Miller were both arrested by communist-backed police. Oh, God. They asked them all questions about everything that was happening. They answered all the questions honestly, and then they proceeded to grill Spinell about all of the movies he was in like the French Connection <laughs> Godfather yeah. what it was like to actually work with actual mafia guys tons of questions and according to Jason Miller they continued to come and pick them up at the end of filming every day to continue to ask them questions so it, 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 about it, the bar fight uh, but it all was just about Spinell and all of his great just, stories just to talk about movies because from what I have heard about Joe Spinell the man knew how to spin a yarn when you see like when you see things in film and video or TV like Tony Soprano telling his stories and being so charismatic and holding sway mm-hmm. now imagine that as joe spinell being joe spinell but talking to communist police in budapest yeah right there, seriously the supplemental features that tell the story of the craziness that went on behind the scenes of this film i think it really enhances just how much craziness made it to the screen oh my god these men were going mad yeah behind the scenes while filming it every day mm-hmm. and were just going mad on screen as well it's a rare amount of just uncontrolled chaos that is captured on screen and somehow packaged up into a movie for you and yet it still achieves its goal it's very moving yes i mean there are times in this film where i was doing the notes for this and i was openly weeping i've not been moved that much by it in a really long time like i was telling myself i don't know if i'm going to be able to do this in front of matt because i'm going to lose my shit and he's going to have to walk out of the room because he won't be able to handle it. i don't handle i only handle my like my my wife and my son's if they have like emotional stuff, I can handle that and not feel uncomfortable. For some reason, they're the only two. Anyone else in this <laughs> world, if they start crying in front of me, I fucking just, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know what to do. <laughs> the thing that I love the most about this movie is you can never really pull a full bead on what it is. Yeah. I mean, even when you try to describe it, you can get to a certain point of describing what's happening in the film, but you cannot synopsize the film without talking about it its entirety. Yes. Because it is multiple levels. It's like, it's an existential space, like love story of like the cosmos. So it ex- existential cosmos love story where it's a man who is enamored with becoming an astronaut on but is terrified when he goes up there of being left alone to die because he feels there's nothing else there yeah but he's so in love with that idea that he's obsessed with the moon he's just terrified to go there because what if he gets left there and he dies alone yeah you you have this i mean everything that it deals with the emotional aspects of just being a sentient being that i already covered after cutshaw's speech yeah uh-huh. i don't need to delve back into my feelings about that because i think we dug into that really deep yeah we already did that shockingly yeah. so that yeah. was uh, incredible that's some of the most deep shit we've ever talked yeah, uh-huh Big on the show. And that is 
the crux of what I love so much about this film. I have yet to show this to a single person who is at least of moderate intelligence, yourself included. <laughs> he said moderate. Moderate. <laughs> who has not taken... Fucking it's going to be a good day today. Who has not taken something from this film, Matt. Everyone who I've ever shown this to has found something in this film and has moved them and they have found something to like about this film. Mm -hmm. I personally have created several other fanatics about it as well. Nice. Now I just want to tell my story about how I found it. All right. In college, there was a guy who was essentially the dude we hung out with when we wanted to get into trouble. I gotcha. He was essentially the term after us he started as like a freshman. So we were still technically kind of like, it's a two-year school but like it started terms you know you, I went, gotcha. you went throughout the year with a few small breaks in between yeah uh, he started a term after us so he was technically younger than us kind of deal and all that but he was still within our age group he stole the original VHS that his grandfather owned of this movie and brought it to college with him and he's like he watched it and he knew that me and my friends were movie fanatics and he's like I don't I don't get it I don't know what's going on with this I'm still trying to wrap my head around it and he's yeah. like this is probably the weirdest fucking thing I've ever seen you guys should check it out nobody else was into it so I just sat down in my friend's room with my VCR because I loaned it to them. Yeah. <laughs> but it's my fucking VCR so I get to watch <laughs> it when I want. I started the tape. Some friends of mine started rolling in during various parts of it and they started asking questions and the next thing I know, like a whole group of us are sitting around this TV and not talking and watching this film, laughing and you know, yeah. and, you know, you're, when you do talk, you're like, what the fuck, don't do that, that mm -hmm. kind of thing, like when yeah. you get into a movie. I was a fan ever since. I fell in love with the movie then. Mm -hmm. The kid got himself into so much trouble he got kicked out of school and ended up somewhere parts unknown D-Day style but yeah. we suspect jail okay as a matter of fact I know that he went to jail because of some of the shit that he did yeah I just don't know how long he stayed there <laughs> unfortunately he took the tape with him uh, all I knew was the name of the film for the longest time and I didn't even get a chance to dub it yeah I searched for that film for the rest of college Jesus told my parents to look for it on digital cable if it ever came on any of the channels that they had yeah I lucked out it showed on stars or encore or something mm -hmm. like that Six months after I had originally saw it. Yeah. They dubbed it for me. Nice. They, they taped it so I could watch it over and over again, and all my friends dubbed it off of my tape. Yeah. Unfortunately, it didn't have the sand and tone part. They started it right at the credits like you would. Yeah. They didn't realize that it was the other part of the movie, so uh, all of us watched that version forever. That's also the version that uh, has Kane dying because the biker, because studio interference, all that kind of yeah. stuff. It's in the special features. I won't get into that. After that, realizing that that wasn't a complete copy and having my copy degraded from watching it so much... I then began a search for what I referred to then as a hard copy, which is a tape that is solely just that movie. Yeah. Three more months. I'm about to graduate from school and I go to the local store in Pittsburgh that I always go to to get my movies, my music. It's like three floors. It's yeah. amazing. It's called Ides. If you're in Pittsburgh, check it out. It's still there. At last I checked, Ides music. I don't know if it's still as awesome as it was back when I went to school there, but it was <laughs> amazing. I went to the movie guy and I literally had to tell him several times, yes, I know it's going to be hard to find. Yes, I know it's going to be expensive. Call every distributor you have. And he's like, I'll have them search their warehouses, but I don't expect it. I'm like, here's my phone number. Call me. I was like, he's like, well, what's the price range? What are you willing to go up to? Yeah. And I'm like, what's the most you ever paid for a tape? He told me I said that much. <laughs> and he's like, are you willing to put money down in advance? It'll make it easier to get it because I can, you know, wire transfer it or whatever, you know, through the store. And so we did it in the paperwork. I put it on the books and I'm like, I paid in advance. I paid $70 to just make sure that he could try and find a copy of the film. Jesus. In the end, he got it from a distributor. He totally honest, very cool guy mm -hmm. that ran the movie section of Ides at the time. He found it for 24 
bucks shipped from a distributor who had it left over in his warehouse. Nice. I got the last tape and I lucked out. It was in mint condition and perfect. Nice. Because they did a couple of pressings of them and it never went anywhere after that. Yeah. I proceeded to then try to find it on Laserdisc and never had any luck. That one VHS tape was the movie I screened multiple times for people forever Mm -hmm. until shortly before my 30th birthday when that DVD came out. There you go. (laughs) Then the Blu-ray, then the other Blu-ray, and I'm hoping for someday a full-fledged 4K scan restoration, but I doubt it will ever happen. Yeah. We talked about it before. This movie was buried. Mm -hmm. Warner Brothers had no idea what they were doing. They gave Blatty the reins because Exorcist was such a hit. Yeah. And they're like, well, John Borman fucked up Exorcist 2 royally, so how bad can he be with this small amount of money? That's why they went to Budapest. Mm -hmm. And the ensuing chaos in the film that resulted from it that Blatty would never really fully got and was still being prodded and poked at by the studio to do all these different things just never quite worked. They never even made a trailer for it. It got released and just ceremoniously dumped to a few theaters here and there and just disappeared and people forgot about it. Yeah. It found some audience on home video, but it is literally people who this film just came to them when they needed it. Uh People like me. Yeah. That's why it's still around. That's why it has the releases it does. Yes. All right. God damn it, dude. Don't do this to me right now. <laughs> no, I'm good. You're I'm good. good? I you got good? everything out I needed to uh, say. The floor is yours. Whatever you want to add to that. I just needed uh, to tell everybody yeah. all of that. I, I mean, nothing that I'm going to say is going to sound any sort of as good as what you just put down, but it is. It's not my particular style of movie, but it's done so well that I still enjoyed it. Um, I think it's a travesty that they, they, they didn't do anything with it the year they released it because it could have, I mean, some the acting in this. And can I, can just, I ask you a question? Yeah. You love the comedy aspects of it, but when the drama hits, it makes you too uncomfortable, right? And you have a hard no, time with that? No, 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 no. I like the drama. I I guess I'm nihilistic enough myself in my real life, and I, I know he finds the chain. Ha, ha, ha. There's supposed to be life after death and all that. I still feel like it's a very heavy nihilistic movie. Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah, and I'm nihilistic enough in my own life that I typically will a lot of times stay away from very nihilistic nihilistic movies is it weird that i find it comforting the way that this movie goes and i don't even care and that's that he, for some people like he, i don't even care that he finds the chain at the end yeah to me this film is supposed to be it's a spiritual sequel to the exorcist mm-hmm. it's part of a loose trilogy or spiritual trilogy yeah. with the exorcist and in this universe that blatty has created his god is real yes cutshaw's soul is desperately in need of saving mm-hmm. there is in fact life after death according to blatty in this film and that could be a clip someone could use against me yes but in this world and in that reality him finding the metal is the logical conclusion to all the emptiness and sadness yeah because what kane ends up saying where it's some evolution of the world in a man so unspeakably beautiful that it's worth all of the pain and suffering of every living thing that ever was i feel like cutshaw crossing over will represent that evolution of man that is supposed to be i think it's like a prophetic thing in this film's world yeah but it's still very empty and nihilistic because we are essentially still in this film adam's running around at our own selfish needs and our own selfish ends. Well, yeah, and, and and there are some people who find comfort in that. I just it's just not it's it's typically not the type of movie I go running after. Uh, but it's if nihilistic type movies are done. Is it too heavy for you? Like the subject matter gets too heavy for you? Is that I mean nihilistic is one way of saying it, but yeah. it 
feels like it feels like it leaves you feeling empty and hollow inside and it must be the subject matter just digs in too deep or something it could be it could be again fear you know the fear of death the oh and it's strong in this it yeah. really makes you think about shit you don't want to think about and then you think about you know i i have a very i don't this is kind of sort of like a vietnam movie and i don't side loaded yeah i don't tend to watch a lot of vietnam movies because no. i don't like to think about it yeah because you don't want to wonder father, what your father went through yeah there. yeah so that's another sort of aspect but if things are done really really well then it doesn't matter then you can still get something out of the movie and i feel like i got some out of the movie i got to see some guys who i know as you know older men now in their kind of their heyday acting their fucking asses off and that is just something that you you some of just, them it's their first roles too. yeah yeah and they, they're that good it's just i mean for nothing else if you just want to see a bunch of young guys who who t- all turned out to be somebody that guy actors yeah and, and phenomenal actors at that busting in when they're young and really kind of nutty then i would definitely suggest this movie still because that is it, it's fucking powerful to watch they are so fucking good at what they do and so that's pretty fucking cool yeah but and i enjoyed it but yeah it's tough it's a tough watch oh it gets dark it gets it's, real dark it's real, real fast. fucking dark and it's the t- I, I freely admit the tone is completely all over the place and completely uneven yeah. because it's going in multiple directions. But I also feel like because it's dealing with madness and existential dread, it needs to be that way because that is yeah. the way your mind goes the, when the you're in that The movie was frame. set up exactly how it needs to be set up for it to be uh, any good. To portray that kind of madness yeah. and that existential exactly. dread. Yeah. yeah. It's all over the place because your mind is when you're in fear of that exactly. type of thing. Yeah. 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 No. But other than that, I mean, that's all I got. You know, uh, nothing I can say can sound... <laughs> anywhere near as passionate as you i probably should have gone first <laughs> <laughs> i had to get it out yeah yeah you I, were busting yeah, at the seams yeah. on this one uh but no it's again uh, i i couldn't suggest this movie more i i think everyone should at least watch this once the ninth configuration i think it's one of those movies that it, it should be up on the old-time classic list it should be something that everyone watched once like up there with the godfather and shit like that i know people hate this film i know there are people out there who absolutely hate this film and they're probably people out there who hate the godfather but i mean people are fucking wrong a lot <laughs> but for me and for the way that film has to work for me i just want to feel something i want your film to affect me in some way shape or form i don't care if you make me if it's if you make me laugh or if you disgust me or anything like that mm-hmm. but god damn if you can make me feel like there may be hope for humanity at the same time showing me that there absolutely is not you're a fucking movie i gotta respect and love <laughs> yeah i mean this was a well done movie yeah and yeah. this is why it is my favorite film yeah and i'm gonna stop because if i keep going i'm gonna go into a realm where it starts being niagara falls yeah and i don't need that shit in my life okay plus it's late as fuck (laughs) it is niagara falls frankie niagara falls frankie niagara falls when i showed him his mother (laughs) niagara falls i still do that whenever something's too emotional (laughs) all right so the ending song that i'm gonna do here should i be uh confrontational or kind of fun let's be kind of fun all right fair enough all right we're gonna play the ending legion podcast promo that you all know and love from this show and when we come back we'll have a little bit of music befitting of the ninth configuration and we will close out this fucking show if you enjoyed this show then make sure you check out the other great shows on the legion podcast network like cinema psyops cinema beef devour the podcast duncan and Bo come correct exploding heads horror movie podcast friday the 13th get slayed the hell Ming power hour hello this is the doom show hero hero go show kill the cat 
Blast, Underwater Kaiju from Outer Space, Jerry Hates Action, Legion After Dark, Mental Health, Obsessive Cinema, Discourse, Pick 6 Movies, The Podcast by the Cemetery, The Podcast on Haunted Hill, The Psycho-Semantic Podcast, Rick Radio, House of Wax, Dude Looks Like the 80s, Rabbit and Red Radio, The Shadecast, Short Bus Cinema, Two Drink Minimum Commentaries, The VD Clinic, Who Will Survive Horror Podcast, and Which Versus the Doomsday Clock. With such a widespread of shows, there is guaranteed to be a niche for you to fall in love with. Horror, politics, movies, books, sex, music, commentaries, health, video games, kaiju, action, news, comedy, and opinions that would most likely get you killed in some parts of the world. We are proud to bring you some of the best podcasting in the world. Check us out at www.legionpodcast.com, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, and any other dark corner of the internet where podcasts can be found. Offensive song. Oh, Dear God by XTC. Oh, yeah, that would have done it. <laughs> I mean, it's also an upbeat and happy song, yeah. but uh, it's very confrontational in its uh, attack upon the quote-unquote almighty, so there you go. Speaking of things that are quite mighty, Matt, do you realize what this episode number is? Uh, I do not. 208. 208. Do you know why that's important, Matt? Why is that important? Divide 208 by 52. I didn't realize this was math with court psyops. <laughs> I didn't realize this was math psyops. That's your new name for next year. It's the end of year four. This is the last episode of year four. Oh, man. I snuck this in on you, and I'm not going to tell you until now, but the opening music for the show, that's the last time you're going to hear year four's music, man. Oh, man. I I like that. I know. It's all gone now. I'm going to have to do something new. Uh, Do you have something new already ready to go? I haven't created it, but, you know, it's always crunch time whenever I do something like that, and I come up with something. So we'll see. Maybe this year five will be the worst. Worst music I've done maybe, yet. Maybe it would just be. <laughs> I could just do the gonk, but then I would be stealing that from They Must Be Destroyed on site. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Man, I dropped that show name hard. Yeah, the that, left Jesus on my Christ. Deck. Holy cow. Desk is all fucked I, up from that. <laughs> well, let's get the show housekeeping over with while I try and buff out that mark on the desk from dropping the name of that podcast. I've tried to pick it up. It's. <laughs> Jesus, man. See why I dropped it? That name is heavy. I mean, you spiked it. <laughs> you can find our show on the Legion podcast network with our main landing and or launching page legionpodcast.com forward slash cinema dash psyops yeah great you fucked that up now they won't know how to find the fucking show but i just fixed it so they won't even know that i fucked it up other than you said that i fucked it up oh yeah that's right i keep forgetting we're not live (laughs) 
would never do it live. We'd never do it live. Because you're a constant fuck-up. I am. After four years and you still can't get it right. Hey, fuck you. Sometimes you hit the wrong clips, asshole. But it's always fixed. <laughs> but yeah, that's what. But you, you can do that live? You can go to our Facebook group where all of your transgressions are there for everyone to see at all times, even when you edit it because it's there in the edit history. Yes. And I'll tell you what, Matt is checking it because he wants to know that everyone is just as imperfect and fucked up and insecure as him. It's very true. I am. I that's am our, doing that. Our Facebook group, Cinema PsyOps. We're also on FlickChat. <laughs> that is Cinema PsyOps on FlickChat, all one word slammed together for the group code. Or just search it out, Cinema PsyOps. You'll be able to find it. Yeah. There's also a link in the Facebook group for FlickChat. We're trying to get that going to see if people like to talk to us there. That's more topic-oriented and a little less uh, meme posting, so I don't know if people will get into it. Oh, man, but I fucking love our memes. Oh, those <laughs> crazy, dirty bastards. You may be able to meme post as a subject. We'll see. Yeah, I, I, don't I, I don't know. It's I don't all know. new to us. Either way. Yeah. You can find me on Facebook. I am Court Psyops. You can find Matt on Facebook. He is Matt Psyop. Again, check out our Flick Chat as Cinema Psyops is the group code. You can email feedback to Matt, psyopmatt at gmail.com. Assure him that you will take care of his family once he is gone. I don't know. That sounds ominous, yet friendly at the same time. You can email feedback to Court, cinemapsyopscourt at gmail.com. Tell him it's time to stop fucking around with Matt's existential dread and his fear of who will take care of his family. Yeah, right? That's fucking cold. <laughs> it is me. I know. You can also tweet a couple of tweets to a couple of twats on the hate-filled shit fest that is Twitter. Mm-hmm. Fucking Twitter, man. The cesspool. I am at court underscore psyop, and he is at psyop Matt. My radio voice is on point tonight. Yeah, man. Really good. You can also find us on the Instagram, where we are cinema underscore psyops, and by we, I mean the royal we, because I run that shit mm-hmm. like it's my own personal barter town. It is your own personal barter town. Yes, that's yeah, why I, I run d- that shit. I don't even have access to that account. <laughs> no, nor should you. No, nor should I. But I will show you some of the alt models I follow there. Yes. Now, speaking of running your own personal barter towns, folks, thank you so much for being with us through these four years, and also thank you for enduring the fan fest suck-off that was both these last two episodes. I bet they loved these two. For Animal House for Matt and for the ninth configuration for myself, we do appreciate you guys for listening to this show because we don't do this primarily for us. We need your love. We, we need, need your, your attention. Love. I mean, we are doing this primarily for us because we have, we have, we're endless fucking pits of need for your love and attention. If we don't get constant external validation, we no longer exist, and that is our existential crisis. You know, when Michael J. Fox starts disappearing to Back to the Future, that's what happens when we don't get your constant love and attention. If you don't listen to us and you don't post your memes, we're gonna fade away. Court, when your hands is fading away. Court, <laughs> oh, shit. You, you better check Facebook. You better get us out there as fast <laughs> as possible. Well, while you're out there suffering with your own existential dread and just trying to get through this hell that is our life, kick the fuck out of next year and make it your bitch.
believing 